When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sorry, you yes. saw me in my native habitat. <laughs> Absolutely. So I thought this was one of those bring your own energy dome parties. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're just gonna have to pass yours around. Yeah, you gotta. Okay. Well, I don't want to lose my own brain waves. <laughs> so a little bit later, we're gonna have uh, Timothy Renner join us. Oh, uh, talk about uh, his latest book of illustrations that. Uh, and maybe tell us a little bit of uh, uh, some scary stories from his neck of the wood in Pennsylvania. But the reason that this actually came about is because Serfiel, well, you can kind of tell what, uh, how you kind of like your idea for this. Yeah. Well, special. I thought we got to do something. So originally, you know, I was thinking do the whole like, pagan roots of halloween thing but then uh david's just been um working on some uh on uh some stuff around monster bop and these uh syndicated um licensing of horror movies and these horror hosts and just kind of uh this like weird americana uh and uh, he's been posting a lot of this great stuff so i was like man you need to come on and we need to talk about this for um for a, a Halloween episode. So uh, who better than uh, to bring Dr. Future along also uh, the, uh, as an epic fi- filmmaker and connoisseur of horror and B movie weirdness. So I thought this would be a good, uh, good thing to put together here. Yeah. Hey, the could return I, of Dr. Future. Can <laughs> I do like a little uh, bumper music for the theme yeah, for yeah. Halloween tonight? Happy, happy Halloween, 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 <laughs> happy, happy Halloween, Silver Shamrock. Bum, 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 bum. Hey, kids, it's almost Halloween. Get your mask and get ready for the big prize. It's almost Halloween. Bum, 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 bum. Sorry. That was, that was fantastic. You know where that's from, Mr. Madcap, don't you? No, I don't. What is that? That is from Halloween Three, Season of the Witch. Yes. Oh wow. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a classic. The one without Michael Myers. Right, <laughs> and then with with uh, 
that was the one originally the story was written by Nigel Neal, the guy that did the Quatermass stories, you know, like Quatermass in the pit. Yeah. But but then they had to add a little bit more gruesome stuff and he bowed out because that was, you know, he likes to leave things unsaid, like a lot of British horror and science fiction. But he he had the the core story and it involved Stonehenge and a bunch of other weirdness. And pretty good flick, wasn't it, Adam? I don't think I ever it, saw it. It was. I've actually I've actually seen it twice because I watched it again after that. And it's very much um like the the very the ending of it is very reminiscent of 1950s horror movies like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm-hmm. and yeah, like Twilight Zone, you know, because what, what's it, what is he yelling in the phone? Turn it off! Turn it off! Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a and very you... it's a very convoluted plot. I'll I'll just put it that way. <laughs> it it has to do with Stonehenge and Halloween masks and clockwork androids it's yeah it's, it's very weird the best part is the children that get killed in it yes that's your favorite part <laughs> it makes it a good flick the innocent children that died on the behalf you know the guy who was the main bad guy in that was also the same irish actor if you remember the movie fail safe sort of the post-apocalyptic movie you yeah. remember that uh mm-hmm. with uh um Fonda, Henry Fonda was the president and he goes up in the B-52 where they make a deal with the Russians since they can't call the bombers back and he decides to go bomb New York City to make amends where the president's wife and children are at and the, and he, he releases the bombs and then he sticks the needle in his arm to commit suicide. Wow. That's another cheery movie. Yeah, that, was the, that was the same guy? Same that, actor, yeah. That it said, actually... Happy Halloween. <laughs> it actually came out the same, I think, the same year as Dr. Strangelove. Right. And strangely enough, Dr. Strangelove was actually kind of based, like they were based on the same novel, but Dr. Strangelove was a like satirical adaptation of the novel. Right. And a number of years ago, Failsafe was reproduced live. And, um, Oh, the actor, all the ladies like. What's his name? Yeah, George uh, Clooney. Clooney, yeah. He was the main guy in that. So, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to distract, but no, no. they said that unmistakable. Cool. Yeah, it's really uh, it, it's a cool idea about TV taking over people, sort of like what's happened in the last four years or so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly what. Only got- then it was just children. Yeah. That's what that's what led me down this road was I was trying to figure out like where, why in 1958 is there suddenly a bunch of doo-wop and like early rock and roll stuff about the universal horror movies? Like where did that come from? So last year I got obsessed with these this mm-hmm. music and I was just listening to like tons of fifth late late 50s early 60s uh, like horror themed stuff. And trying in this year, I actually kind of the question just really sunk in of where did this come from? Like why in 1958, yeah. out of nowhere, do you suddenly have these these songs? And it turns out it was because of a syndicated package called right. Shock Theater, right. which uh, it syndicated 52 of the early uh, pre-1948 Universal horror movies to television stations across the U.S. And it created this massive wave of horror hosts and late night horror movies 
that hadn't really existed up to that point. They had been running um, some some B movies in that like late night, but it wasn't as focused, and it wasn't the classic. They didn't have the rights to syndicate the classic like Universal horror stuff. And so the second that that hit, the ratings went insane, and all of America got washed in this craze of like mm-hmm. horror movies. And then the music reflected that. So the music came out to kind of capitalize on that. And then right. there's like market, you had this massive wave of Halloween masks. And I was actually, I was thinking about it in terms to, um, you know, this idea of the pagan roots of Halloween or, you know, like the, the ancient roots of Halloween. But the Halloween that we know is not really that at all. You know what I mean? Like we can, we can look back on that stuff and it's kind of interesting to see like, oh, this is why, you know, in the, 1800s jack-o'-lanterns existed and stuff but that's not how we experience it what we experience is actually this version that's been created by these product markets and by these this music you know like the monster mash and that that came out because of shock theater like if it hadn't been for shock theater being syndicated we wouldn't have had you know halloween as we know it by bobby boris pickett yeah and you know he that was it's really interesting because that stuff um you know, in terms of like the, again, you were talking about the idea of like television, like kind of washing over people's brains. And we have this like wave of conspiracy and, and kind of odd mediated thought that's happening. But um, back in that time period, so in the late 50s and through the 60s, the way that the royalties work in that, I always wondered like, did Monster Mash kill, you know, Bobby Pickett's career or you know what was it and I kind of had assumed that like he just got pigeonholed and that was it yeah but actually what happened was it sold so well and he didn't he didn't need to do anything else other than Monster Mash for the rest of his career right you know like the I found um on the the shock theater research that in LA in the LA market their shock theater um like late night show which was called shock theater. Um, the guy who in 62 composed the theme song for it because of the advertising and kind of marketing arrangement that they had for the show with a local, uh, Chevy dealer, he was able to make what's equivalent to 200 grand in a year off sales of just the theme music and, and royalties on the theme music being played. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's, that's, some, like, that's serious cash, mm-hmm. which if you think now, like artists put stuff out on Spotify and they get like 0.0001 of a penny per play where back then, you know, this guy composes the theme music to a popular syndicated show and oop, I just made $200,000 in a year mm-hmm. and Bobby Pickett sold, uh, two, I think 1 million copies, mm-hmm. in the, the first like iteration of the monster mash. So he was set up for life and he died a millionaire too. He died yeah. a net worth of like 1.7 million or something. So hey yeah. David, how how old are you? Uh I am 40. 40? And what part of the country did you grow up in when you were young as a kid? Uh I grew up in Chicago, like right outside of Chicago. Okay. I was like seven. And then after that I moved to Arizona for a couple of years. Okay. Because because I'm old enough that the that that's wave directly hit me on the tail end in my youth yeah when i was a little kid because in louisville kentucky where i was raised which was a classic all-american mid, mid-sized city um with a very very strong local flavor to it uh very much um 
the the media, you know, from Top 40 Radio and the three TV stations we had were very much centered on local events and activities. And there's still a tremendous amount of pride in Louisville. A lot of people move there from L.A. They, they had the third most prestigious media market in Louisville because of right. the Bingham family, who was like one of the heavy hitters right under New York and in L.A. with the Courier-Journal, very famous newspaper. So they had a lot of clout. They, they swung beyond their weight. But <clears throat> I don't mean to hijack what you're saying, but, but oh, yeah. I did. I live what you talked about because yeah. the first UHF channel started in Louisville in 1971. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in an age that a lot of our viewers here cannot imagine pre-mid-90s, pre-internet, like right. when dinosaurs ruled the earth <laughs> and you, you just didn't know stuff. You didn't have the world at your fingertips. You knew what three TV stations broadcast. Most of them were controlled by the old, um, vaudeville right. kind of culture, you know, the New York, uh, kind of, kind of culture. And they still ran those guys as the headliners, the Milton Burles and the people like that. The, the variety the borscht, shows, the borscht belt, the borscht belt stuff that really dominated our culture. So basically you, you know, we were beggars and you beggars don't choose. And so right. you had three TV stations that were largely us in flyover country couldn't relate to. And then suddenly you had a UHF channel pop up and our finally got to our market in 71 and it was run on a shoestring. And I suggest people read about it. If you go to a website called Spooky Blue, you'll read a little bit about WDRB and particularly the horror host, which had a huge impact on me. His name was the fear monger. And <laughs> he ran a show called Fright Night. Yeah. And what was unique about Fright Night was it came on prime time Saturday night. Right. They, since they had no money, they didn't try to counter program with the same stuff as the big networks they would run something different. So when I was a kid, I was six years old in 1970. So like six or seven, it pops up and it has all this after school programming, like Presto the Clown, who did all these cool magic tricks, including this one called the Sands of the Desert that, you know, 50 years later, I can't figure out how he did it. <laughs> and all these little friends and people my age would write letters to him. And they had Gilligan's Island. You saw that as soon as you got home from school. Spider-Man, the Spider-Man show. Ultraman, one of my all-time favorites. And then on the weekends, roller derby, professional wrestling. Sons of Hercules, another one of my favorite ones, if no one's seen that. Um, but by 7 o'clock was Fright Night. And it was a double feature, and it was the Shock Theater package. Mm -hmm. So they ran the full Shock Theater double double build and then eventually there was a shock two, a shock yeah, theater two that came double out that, theater, yeah. that was more of those but since they were so cheap what what they had to do with the fear monger is that um i guess it was filmed in a garage the uhf channel you know reached the whole what they call kentucky anna area up there um and and they basically just had it all blacked out with his face a little solarized and a light underneath his chin and he would sort of zoom into the camera and zoom out. And he talked very mysterious and told these really bad jokes, you know. they I think they said it was the Barnabas Collins uh, jokes <laughs> in a scary vein or something like that. But anyway, he terrified me. I mean, he because I after the, after the shows were over, I could see his face on my 
my bedroom wall next to my little bunk bed I slept on. And I could just see him like zooming up there and staring over me. Right. But, but, but the thing that was wonderful about it was that all of the universal films, which were masterfully done. If yeah. you do, if you're into filmmaking and things like that, they had major budgets. There were true artists, cinematography, lighting, things like that. And they were just buried. Yeah. You know, in the 50s, you had sci-fi movies. The yeah. radiation stories were dominant. And then suddenly, like you say, Shock Theater brought back all the Universal monsters and other stuff, bizarre stuff that, you know, you wouldn't remember. Um, the one that really freaked out my sister and I, and, and when you read about this, like in this era, like if you go to the, uh, I think it's called Spooky Blue website, you'll read a lot about Fright Night and things. They'll talk about all the people in our little quaint neighborhoods in Louisville getting a bowl of popcorn, you know, where you had to cook it on the stove in a skillet, you know, with some lard or something like my aunt used to make. And you would just sit there with the popcorn with all the lights out and just crawl under the covers, you know, just trying to watch it. Maybe hope you had a dog to hang on to. And you would watch The Mummy or you watch. But The Tingler was the one that always freaked out my, my yeah, my, my sister and I. And it, just the thought of something like grabbing onto your back and, you know, that's this thing sneaking up your shirt, you know, and killing you, that would really creep her out, you know? And so there's several of those movies today that still like, like the original fly, the original fly movie is one that I don't think gets enough credit for how it can get in your head. Oh, yeah. uh, both pathos, the pathos of it, what you don't see, you know, what is delayed until you see exposed. And then of course the end, the money shot at the end of the movie you yeah. know, when the spider web. Yep. I mean, that's the stuff of nightmares. If you had to say. <laughs> Help me. So, I, don't, I don't want to take over your, uh, oh, no. your process, but when you, when you talk about this, this is near and dear to my heart. And it yeah. wasn't later. And, and in fact, there's only one still image of the fear monger anywhere. Yeah. That's the thing. everything else has disappeared because all they didn't of, keep anything. Right. All of this is lost. And that, that was something that really struck me as I was looking you know, into this is that because of the way that they filmed this, it was live TV. They weren't even, you know, they weren't considering archiving or anything like that. This wasn't, we're making history and we're going to archive it. And right. this, this was just, this is how we're presenting this syndicated package. And we have these hosts and they do it and that's it. And it disappears. And so much of this, it's just, it's written about people have memories of it, but they do, there's no actual, you know, recording of it or anything until you get into like the mid seventies, late seventies and eighties when stuff was a little bit better preserved because it mm -hmm. was shot on something you could store. But, right. you know, before that you don't really have any, any footage like Vampira, um, who kind of started the whole horror host concept in pre like before the shock theater package even existed, she was hosting, um, you know, mystery movies like the 13th guest and stuff like that. She wasn't, it was, it was some of the, the, the B movies before there was a B movie that were shot in, in Hollywood and they mm -hmm. were, and there's this whole history of the syndication rights too, that goes into this where, you know, it, it she was, she started in 1954 when, um, Hey, know, there, there he is. Yeah. Fright night. There's yeah. a fear monger. That's and that's the, the this is some of the stuff that does exist still is are these the newspaper ads and the ads that yeah. that you know that was from TV that was from TV Guide I think yeah uh, had Fright Night in it but yeah Fearmonger was gone by seventy five yeah but, they, were, they were quick because they ran out of the yeah. 
the syndication packages, depending on yeah. how much the television station played, they could they played through the shock theater package, which was 52 uh, movies, and then more movies were added on with the Son of Shock. Mm-hmm. By the right. 70s, there were a lot more syndication options. There was uh, Creature Features uh, right. syndication package, which included the movies that were shot in the 50s that were like the giant, like the tarantula and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, them with the ants and uh uh, the, the deadly mantis i think is one of them right uh, which is a giant praying mantis um so yeah. a lot of those were added in and the creature features also added the hammer horror films which is where christopher lee's dracula and peter cushing's van helsing and mm-hmm. the the hammer remakes of some of the classic uh the movies those were added into the creature right. features and you also got the kaiju movies from japan so like godzilla and ultraman would have been mm-hmm. in in the mix of of these things that were brought over and now, I, I, I got a question for you, Dave, on that. This was another horror host close to you. Um, and he had a really, really long run. And that was Sammy Terry in Bloomington. Are you familiar much with Sammy Terry in Bloomington, Indiana? No, no it sounds familiar, but I, I've been... Because you can find a lot of Sammy Terry stuff on YouTube. Because right. even in the advent of cable, when uh, WT... I think at WTTV, mm-hmm. which was the Bloomington station went like um, the Atlanta Superstation. It went right. syndicated on cable. Uh, he was a big popular in Bloomington as Indiana University College right. Town. And he was the big popular guy in Indiana University. But to this day, that guy, even as an adult, creeps me out <laughs> because he, he was a little pudgy, a little roundish, a little Pillsbury Doughboy, big round face, red cape, cape came around his face sort of like this white face and he talked like this (laughs) and came out of a coffin you know george the spider was this but he would say things that almost felt like it was almost too real for him like children if you walk past here at a certain time i will be happy to let you in but will you ever see the light of day that's to be determined. <laughs> and you're, 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 good at, you're good at this, Mike. <laughs> yeah, he, crossed, he sort of crossed the line, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Went from fun into like, I'm not so sure if this is an act. <laughs> and, and he was a beloved character. I think he probably did the news there, like, or in the weather, you know? But I suggest you check out Sammy Terry. Uh, because the, some of the stuff that exists, it almost made you feel like he was a real practic, practicing occultist. Right. Like he really, really was into this more than you could feel comfortable. <laughs> more, but more but there's than, lots more. of that around. Yeah, I'll check that out. Yeah, because it's, yeah. it's interesting to look back on these because the, um, the, the, there were so many hosts because you had so many different television stations that, had, that were syndicating this stuff. So every, every local station... Usually they either had a a show kind of like uh, beginning intro reel that they had designed to feature the stuff, or they had a host that actually did it. And mm-hmm. so many of the hosts were they weren't necessarily horror fans. They were just yeah. you know the the announcer that could do it. Or there was one um, I think Serfiel that uh, I can't remember what his name was, but he was um, Doctor Green the dr gangrene wears the boy scout patch yeah, yeah. he's here in yeah. nashville wasn't he yeah nashville yeah. dr gangrene yeah and yeah. he was the, the one patch that's a that is from an earlier one that he grew up on 
uh, an earlier horror host from this area. Who was we, we reached out to him today. That's who we reached out to. Yeah, we tried to. Then yeah, he lived in Andersonville or somewhere like that. Yeah, I think yeah, I think so. he had, he had some advertisements for Gallatin business, so I think he's up there. Mike, uh, when did you come to Nashville? Oh, that wasn't until much later. It was like 2003. Okay, and, okay. And I uh, um, I lived in Dayton, Ohio, right after I got my master's degree in engineering and worked at the Wright Patterson in '87, and that was just after the uh, era of Doctor Creep. Dr. Creep was the guy in the Dayton area. Okay. And he looked more hippie-like. He had some, one of those Captain Ahab beards that went around. And, of course, the white makeup and, like, rose-colored glasses. So a lot of these guys were, they looked more as much hippie-like as they did. Yeah. Well, right? David, you were exploring, too, how the whole idea of having a horror host was something that was promoted in the marketing of these packages to the stations. Yeah, there was the when the shock theater package came out, it was um, the horror section of a 500 movie syndication package that okay. included westerns, mysteries, and the rest of it. So the shock theater was specifically the horror movies. And there's in the the presser that they sent out to the television stations to get them interested in this, they had like this this awesome like two page spread where the first the first page of it was how to, you know, court your, your, uh, the people who are going to be funding this, right? So your sponsors, how do you, as a television station, you know, create an atmosphere where your sponsors are going to want to spend ad dollars on this, you know, this programming. And so they, you know, they recommended to have like these parties that were themed kind of like Halloween party sort of yeah. thing. And it was all, what's interesting is I, I looked at it more it was all drawing on what the studios had been doing to promote their movies at the time. And in the, in the fifties and that, you know, like you mentioned the tingler, right? Like the tingler was one of the ones where they had vibrating seats, right? They installed little vibrating seats in the movie theater when they would uh, show the movie so that at the, you know, the scary moments that the seats would vibrate. So there were all these different things that the studios had done to promote these movies. Um, a lot of times when the uh, the horror movies would premiere, they would decorate the, uh, you know, the, the lobby of the theater with, you know, kind of turn it into like a haunted house as a promotion for the movie. And there were all these different kind of promotional gags that they were doing. And so the shock theater presser recommends that television stations host this kind of like Halloween themed event for their sponsors to come and offered different kind of ideas for how to, how to do that. And then the other page of this two page spread was um, how to cultivate an audience. And so they recommended that the studios, you know, bring Dracula to your town and have Dracula ride around and, you know, do right. these different stunts and stuff. But the, what that turned into was these posts that would host the shows and, you know, kind of give this local flair and this local flavor to the syndicated package and be able to do it. And the Vampira being the first like horror host had come in because they couldn't figure out how to sell these crappy movies. So <laughs> the rock theater package was good because as Mike pointed out, these were actually amazing films. These were, you know, the universal horror movies are actually, oh, they're like expressionist. Right cinematic you know kind of visions but the stuff they had been showing on the late night shows were time filler and it was the crap that like they could license cheaply because it wasn't 
it was you know it never yeah. it wasn't expensive to make it didn't really make much money at the the box office and so they could license this stuff cheap or bef- prior to 1957 it was also foreign movies so yeah. there was this weird mix of like mario bava who is a uh, he's an italian um horror director yeah. and giallo which are uh kind of like murder murder stories um but Bob made one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, was it Black Sabbath? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Black yeah. Well, and that's yeah, the, with Barbara Steele. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing. So yeah. amongst like the bad American movies that they were showing, they also, it was easy to get rights to the Italian stuff and to some of the British stuff. So they were showing like art films mm-hmm. from from overseas next to movies that were, you know, not not so arty from the U.S. And then in 1957, you got where the U.S. started to, to syndicate the actual kind of more uh, maturely developed film products that they had done. Yeah, um, younger people can't understand. In those eras, your world was mostly your neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, you were very limited the information on TV you got. And so, for example, like music, if people are music collector like I am, you had to go to the local Holiday Inn when the record collector convention came and you would flip through crates, milk crates to try to find something. And all you knew about the band was the liner notes on the back. Yeah. It was all mystery. And sometimes I nostalgically pined to go back to that era when you had real discovery. Yeah. I know it would be claustrophobic now because (laughs) I have friends and we'll watch movies and the movie just starts and they're already on their phone looking up Wikipedia to yep. learn everything about the movie as it's just started. <laughs> and everything is at the fingertips of everybody. And on one way, that's great. And the other way, the magic is gone. He's because talking, to, he's talking about, he's talking about me. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. But you know, the, the thing was, I, I was one of those insomniacs that stayed up. Cause I, when I was like five, six years old, I'd watch the tonight show to one o'clock. And so I learned that culture of Hollywood from watching the tonight show and the right. tomorrow show or SETV at 1230 at night, yeah. you know, Which Watch count Floyd. Remember count, count Floyd. Floyd. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And don't, don't forget uh, Dr. Tongue's 3d house of stewardesses. Right. <laughs> do we want to, do we want to share some of these pictures, David? Yeah. 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 We've got uh, some pictures from the shock theater package that we can. Uh, okay. So oh, I just wanted I to say kind of... one last one last thing. That the point I was making is for us insomniacs back in that era when you didn't know about anything, you'd be up to like one thirty or two at night, and like you were talking about, one of those foreign films would come on, and it would get into your head, and yeah. it would really freak you out when you saw it, and you never forgot it the rest of your life because you didn't know anything else other than these disturbing images you saw. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, that's what I'm really nostalgic for. Yeah, and it's interesting because you know you it, that wasn't I don't think that really changed um, until uh, like the the late nineties mm-hmm. because when you know when I was growing up in the eighties and like the early nineties it was still kind of that way like my first exposure to anime was on WCIU which was uh, the a local station that used to play that you know in the nineties they were playing anime as their late night feature. So I would watch these like weird anime stuff that, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what this was other than it was anime and it was, it was weird. And there was, there was still kind of that feeling a little bit of, you know, what, what is this, you know, like, where did this Mm -hmm. come from? The internet 
was you know in the in the mid '90s was uh, was fairly developed, and then in the late '90s, a lot more developed. So there was more access to that. But even that was kind of you know a hit or proposition of if the information would be out there and you know, message boards and that kind of thing. Um, uh, we've the, got a phone. Yeah, the, the only thing you could find out were from newsletters. You could sign yeah. onto a fan newsletter that was mimeographed, mm-hmm. and you would have these like grainy kind of things that have lists like weird movies you could order on VHS. Yes. And you didn't yeah. know anything except one line written in a catalog. And your imagination had to fill in the rest of what you were getting. You didn't know where it come from, how they got a hold of it. it could be a snuff film is all, you know, <laughs> but that was the world of discovery of what, you know, what we ran into. You know, it's funny. You mentioned the monster mash. Uh, there was a whole explosion of that kind of monster music with it. Uh, I have one called monster surfing time and it's yeah. all songs that are novelty about surf, the surf culture and monsters doing it. Just about everything, you know, monsters and spies, everything, because they sold so much merchandise. Right. You know, they were selling. The instrumental rock and roll really lends itself to themes and there's really great instrumental rock and roll that has these horror themes. Mm -hmm. And then you had Big Daddy uh, Roth and his rat fink. And they would yeah. have these pictures of these big demonic characters driving cars with big stick shifts. And see, that's what I grew up with. That's yeah. what I, was everybody's lunchbox. That was in the garages when you went in people's garages working on cars. They either had that or had calendars with like buxom women holding a muffler or something like that, you know, <laughs> that were in a bathing suit. And nobody so, thought anything about it, but that's sort of the way it was. So, David, do you want to explain some of these? Yeah, this is a, this is the original Monster Mash uh, release. This was this is from the the forty five, um, the the single, and so Bobby Pickett had been a singer with the Cordials, who was it was a vocal group, kind of like a doo wop group in uh, California, and he would do you know kind of little kind of play acting during parts of the set and one of the times he did Boris Karloff as as a during a spoken part in one of the songs and the crowd really liked it so I think it was his guitarist was like oh we should make we should do that on a on a single like novelty records so big and uh Pickett was like yeah I don't know if I'm gonna do that you know I don't know about that but he wanted to be an actor at the time so he went and had auditioned with some stuff didn't really have a a lot of success and he came back to the guitarist like, okay, let's do a novelty. Like, what do we do? So in a half hour to an hour, they recorded the Monster Mash. This has Leon Russell on mm-hmm. uh, keyboards and piano. It actually has like some pretty serious like studio uh, clout in the, the recording, but um, they couldn't get anybody to pick it up. So when they sent it to the, the record labels, the record labels were like, this is crap. Like, we're not, not going to do this, you know? And so they, they gave it to DJs, and DJs started playing it. And people went nuts, called in for it more, and then uh, London picked it up. But this is the, the cover to the original, um, you know, kind of indie, indie release of the Monster Mash. Cool. And this is, uh, so never before on TV, this is the moment right here. This is when Screen Gems releases the Shock Theater package. This is one of their their advertisements for that. And this would have been more geared towards the industry. 
um, than the public. So this was kind of their, you know, send this out to the, the television stations and try to get their interest in syndicating this. And up to this point, this, so this is in 57, um, horror movies had in theaters been seeing a revival um, because they were cheaper to make than Westerns. And uh, they were a huge hit at the drive through theaters. And they were actually some in some markets, they were keeping theaters open. So the, the you know, any kind of fall off in audience participation and interest uh, had been revived by horror movies by 1957. So, you know, it kind of was a perfect time to release this to the, the television studios. And this is uh, how good a time it was. So this is the LA uh, KTLA uh, promotion for just what they were seeing in terms of their audience uh, reaction to the Shock Theater premiere. So the ratings went up 339%, which is insane. If you were a studio executive and you saw that increase, you know, this is like, you know, put all all chips in, like we're batting the whole the whole house on this one. Like this is great. And the audience share of the market took them to number two by like a quarter of a point they missed number one. So it was this this literally shot them through the roof on ratings. And uh the show that launched this was Nightmare Theater, um, hosted by an old Hollywood uh character actor. Um who we'll see in a second here and uh nightmare theater they because it's hollywood they were closer to uh, you know the actual studio screen gems and all that that was releasing the package so they didn't want to be lumped in with the other folks who just called it shock theater so they had nightmare theater and that only ran for a year um before it was replaced with other stuff and then became shock theater in 1962 but i mean th these numbers are crazy so this is the the kind of driver is the the public interest in this stuff. Um, you know, you can just see, and and like Mike's pointing out, like it's hard to imagine now anything that would have this kind of you know sudden effect of interest and attention to it um, in the media. You know, because this isn't like a this this wasn't like a one-off like this is interesting for a week and a whole bunch of people click it and you get a million like tweet shares or something like this was years of massive interest from all walks of society uh in horror movies you know so this is uh the uh another shock theater ad i don't know what market this one's from um but you can see i mean the, the, it's interesting because this, I mean, this wasn't seen in 50s culture. Like this was this kind of, it was super subversive for the time. Because, in, you know, you think of like the, you know, like Ozzy and Harriet and like the the I Love Lucy show and stuff. I mean, the, the, the kind of stuff that was being shown, the very like clean 50s suburban image you know or the you know new york kind of like jet setting image like these horror movies were were something completely different you know here's the an ad for uh the first showing of dracula ever and i posted something on facebook today about some of the reactions to dracula when it came out 
um, where, you know, PTA uh, people like PTA administrators and stuff were talking about how it was horrifying that this would be shown to any children and it was the most revolting, disgusting, morbid, unconscionable thing to show. And that, that was talking about the, the 1930s movie release. So now here you have, <laughs> it's, it's on television, you know, it's, it's, it's now broadcast to the, the whole United States syndicated. Um, but just the idea of what a big deal this was. And also the fact that it's wild that in 1957 and 1958, this movie that was made in the 1930s, early 1930s, suddenly was coming back. And unfortunately, Bela Lugosi didn't live to see this revival. So Bela Lugosi had died, I think, in 56. So, um, you know, he dies. And then the next year, they launched this package, which uh, could have revived his, his career if he had that, been healthier. That didn't yeah. stop Ed Wood, though, from making the last Bela Lugosi mm -hmm. film. No, yeah, no. <laughs> All you got to yeah, do is put your is get your chiropractor to right. to wear, uh, to wear the, the cape. Okay, yeah, and and that's it. You've got uh, Vampira behind you, you know, who was also in in Plan Nine as well. Right, so, right. Um, and her, she like her as the first uh, vampire as the first horror host had a hell of a time. Um, she was assaulted in her apartment by. Uh, some weird rabid fan she had they i mean the stuff that it it we just can't imagine it now the the effect that this had um but this stuff rocked people's worlds and the people that were involved in it early on saw some of the worst of that because this was kind of like it opened the floodgates of the american id and mm -hmm. things came out you know, so when Vampira premiered in 54 and 55, um, she had some kind of scary interactions with people that felt more free to express their dark side, you know, and their, mm -hmm. their, their things. So that, I mean, she was, yeah, she was assaulted in her apartment and mm -hmm. uh, the media mocked her for it because there was no precedence for what she was doing in terms of the character, mm -hmm. you know, so there was uh, not a lot of sympathy for her. So this was well, you know, when when you only have like three or four channels, and you don't have cable, and you don't have video games, you don't yeah. have other things to do. Particularly when it's dark and kids have to come in after playing ball outside, it's a commonly shared experience. Yeah. So you've got you've got a major segment of the entire nation because there's just literally nothing else to do. Right. That all experiences it, and this is what we talked about at school the next day. Yeah. Like the AB, the ABC movies of the week, you know, like there was a lot of like uh, Satanism and witch movies and stuff like that. And of course, Trilogy of Terror, which was the scariest thing ever on TV. I mean, only only uh, maybe Salem's Lot would be up there, you know, on regular TV, made for TV. But everybody talked about it because everybody saw it. And it wasn't like Netflix era or other things where everybody's going watching a million different things and you have big hits, but they can be big hits with a very small sliver of the entire public enjoying right. it. Back then you literally had, you know, a third or 40% of the people pretty conversant in these people that you're talking about. So it was, it was a shared societal experience. Yeah. And that's so different. Um, it's so different from the way it is today. And it's just, mm -hmm. And, you know, like you said, kind of this nostalgia of looking back on it. 
um, because it, yeah, it was the shared, uh, you know, almost ritual of like going home. And there's some, there's funny stories from 1957 and 58 about the, you know, unsuspect people you wouldn't suspect were fans of the shock theater stuff, like society matrons who wouldn't go to their pinochle game that, you know, at that, if it was scheduled for that day, because they were going to be watching shock theater, you know? So it's like this, this kind of, this awakening of uh, the American public to this stuff, you know, and, and giving a second life to, uh, you know, Lon Chaney, who was still alive and, uh, Boris Karloff, who was still alive, and Vincent Price, and that um, were were kind of revived by this, uh, you know, this this focus. This is a Chiller Theater from New York, still of the the intro, and Chiller Theater was one of the ones that didn't have a host, so they had this uh, famous claymation intro, and and again, kind of the the industry side of this, um, the intro. The claymation intro was made by uh, Rankin and Bass guy. Rankin and Bass mm. were, uh, you know, they did a lot of the kind of early cartoons that people, were, well, not early, I guess. Ru- Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. Yeah, exactly. The Rudolph the Red Nosed yeah. Reindeer. Everybody watches. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so one of their people did that. This is the uh, this is the L.A their first shock theater package was presented by nightmare theater, um, hosted by, uh, Otala, Otala Nes- Nesmith, um, who was a, a character actor who had actually been in some of the universal horror movies. Um, here as a host, she played the old woman, uh, who was kind of, uh, a takeoff on sort of, uh, um, you know, what's the, what's that famous movie with, uh, I'm ready for my close up. Oh, um, Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, Sunset Boulevard. She played kind of a a, a character that was based on the, the fading actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mae West uh, actually got really upset by it because she thought that they were they were focusing it on her. I guess in one of the shows they made a comment about Mae West, and Mae West's lawyers <laughs> contacted the the studio and was like, "This is defamation of of her character, and you can't do that um, because there were, I guess, you know." It's Hollywood, so there were touchy people who saw themselves in this character of the old woman who was listening to her Victrola um, and kind of a little bit, a little bit out there. This is another uh, the pre-claymation uh, Chiller Theater intro, which had actually had uh, Vampire from Plan Nine from Outer Space. One of the scenes from that was in the background, um, but this the it's interesting because Shock Theater chiller theater creature features um these were kind of generic brand terms for these movies being shown and late night television so you get uh, you know you get chiller theaters from across the u.s where there's there's a bunch of different ones this is from new york um uh vampira prior to the shock theater package um had you know, become this massive hit. She was only around for a year on LA television. Um, this is from a spread in Life Magazine, which focused on her. Life Magazine and Newsweek covered her six, but within six weeks of her premiering the show, uh, she was already in Life Magazine and Newsweek. It was such a, a shift in culture in 1954 that um, 
you know, to have this woman and she was, she was doing a takeoff on the Charles Adams, uh, Morticia Adams character, um, where, uh, you know, and she was, she had dated Orson Welles at a certain point. She was good friends with James Dean. James Dean actually was on one of the shows as a schoolboy being, uh, you know, being <laughs> taught uh, a lesson by the vampire, uh, school teacher character. Uh, she designed this, um, they didn't want to rip off Charles Adams completely. So she added some bondage culture, uh, with the waistline. So this was a BDSM uh, takeoff on a Charles Adams character. Charles Adams, the Adams Family cartoon, had been around since the late '30s. Um, so, question for you there about her? Uh, you know, you always kind of hear her typified as like she's the original goth, you yeah, know, the original goth chick, right? But uh, so was she kind of tapping into a subculture that was already around LA at that uh, time? Uh, no yes and no so she was tapping into she was she was active in the art scene so she had been a coat check uh girl as they're called or were called um she had been a pinup model and she painted ties so there was this thing in the 50s uh because you know to, to now we have a little bit quicker kind of you can print on demand stuff but in the 50s you would have had to have you know recreated your entire supply chain to do a certain print on a tie mm-hmm. so there was this thing about painted ties so she actually had done painted ties uh kind of designer ties in that um she was at the time uh married to a hollywood script writer um but uh the, the the subculture she was drawing from was really the, the what became known as the beat movement and the beat subculture. It was the the artists, the kind of bohemianism. Um, you know, there's precursors in the fin de uh French writings and European writings, Oscar Wilde, uh, Edgar Allan Poe. So these late like 19th century writers, um, you know, that were, uh, you know, and and 17th century writers and stuff that were or i'm sorry 18th century but this idea of the the gothic tale and that kind of thing so there was there were precursors in the art world um there weren't necessarily precursors in the public consciousness but that's where that's where television comes in you know so the fact that she was on tv made this kind of this like whoa so you know people weren't on the art scene you know like mike's describing like you're sitting there with your family at home you know and all you know is these three channels and like some stuff from the newspapers and maybe whatever book you've got and that and then suddenly here's this woman comes out and she's demonstrating you know the her waistline is corsetry that she literally took from a bondage magazine you know so she's she's taking it from these you know, uh, subversive subcultures and doing what was, you know, her as an artist, uh, Mela Nermi, which is, which is her real name, uh, was taking the daylight world of the 1950s and flipping it on its head, you know, and just completely subverting everything. So, you know, the, the kind of like upper class woman who's real demure and all that, 
but here she's, you know, both very like sexual, but also wasting away. So there's a sense of starvation as well as like sexuality and, you know, she's just kind of like playing with all this stuff and, and kind of. That, that's if you, you could know. go back to that last picture you had up, I, I think what it what it told me is for what you're getting to do. There's a there's an erotic stuff of nightmares. Yeah, particularly those for the middle and the picture to the left and those two, you look at it. And that's why black and white, in my view, is so much more powerful because horror is at its most powerful is when it taps into primal nightmares. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be logical. It doesn't have to be super pragmatic or relatable. It's something that that hits your deeper recesses, like your irrational dreams. And that with the smoke and everything that they masterfully put around her, that is more of a almost like an id. Uh, you know, some image comes out of your deep bowels that comes out. And yeah. I think that's why it touches a nerve when you see that. I think. Probably there's a little bit of Betty Page when you mentioned pinup yeah. in there. Yeah. And also uh, that era of Southern California, then you had somebody like Marjorie Cameron running around too, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the Scar- the Scarlet Whore. And so in their art scene, I think she blazed a trail a little bit too with this kind of image. You know, it may have came a little bit later in the sixties more, Yeah, but, but there, there was some of that that was already going, going around. Yeah. I mean, the, the continuing cultural, impact of that type of imagery like adam was saying like with the i mean how how many gothic teenagers have basically you know based their look off of off of this throughout the entire world which is amazing too because there's no uh there's supremely limited footage from the vampire show and i mean the people actually had to like dig and like really do a lot of like deep kind of archival digging and work to get even that little that's available. Mm-hmm. There's no complete shows uh, that are still existent. Um, there's no, it, I mean, it's, it's this moment that's been completely lost. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so for her to have such a huge impact, but the, the reason that she did though, was because in 1954, there was nothing like this. Like there was no, like no mm-hmm. hope. You know, in the I was I was trying to figure out like you know nothing. The these kind of media things don't just sort of appear out of the air. So there's got to be some sort yeah. of sort of thing. But what they'd had up to this point is you had the radio theaters stuff, where you know you had like uh, suspense theater, um, mm-hmm. which had a lot of uh, different uh, Hollywood Light, stars. Their lights voice. out, lights, lights out had out. a big one like that. But you know the other t- the other touch in here from Southern California is what was called exotica, yeah. And mm-hmm. in this time in this time in Southern California, another guy that was very popular was Corla Pandit, mm-hmm. yeah. And Corla Pandit, who actually makes a, a little cameo in the Ed Wood movie, um, what was a Corla Pandit just basically played exotica music on the organ and created this persona of this mystery man from the Far East. You know, right. wore a turban, never spoke on camera, and was on Los Angeles television for like, you know, hours a day for uh, over a decade. I mean, yeah. a really, really long time. And the only, and everybody thought he was some sultan or somebody from the Far East, and he played on that, never speaking or attending. And in his obituary, we find out he was just an average African American man 
and only he and his wife knew he'd put on this mm-hmm. fake persona to get on TV. But right. when you look at the ladies, the belly dancers that danced and the smoke that came in, that actually was just a little milder form of what you were just showing with Vampira. Right. Yeah. Uh, sort of the stage was set there. And now Corla, Corla is actually uh, Greg Bishop's uh, Radio Mysterioso uh, mascot. Yeah, it's like a spirit animal. Yeah. yeah. Sweet. Hello, Tim. How's it going? Good. We're having a discussion about old-time horror hosts. And I think what? you can be instrumental in the discussion. Well, I've... I modeled Lily Munster. I thought you were going to say cousin. I thought it was going to be cousin it. <laughs> so let's uh, let's get through the rest. Let's get through the rest of these slides. I'm going to go ahead yeah. and add that back to the stream. Yeah, and let's let's rock into Tim's because Tim, your your illustration book is incredible. Oh, thank you. Those illustrations are, I, they've become the the way I see uh, the the kind of cryptozoology topics, the the apparitional Bigfoot is is in my mind. It is your work is the thing that kind of defines that. So, oh, thank you so much. Um, so the slides. These are uh, this one is the cover of the Shock Presser. So this would have been sent to studios, uh, television studios across the United States. Uh, to kind of uh, promote and uh, get their interest in it. And this is what we were talking about earlier that had the recommendations for studios to court sponsors and to court uh, their audience for this stuff. So as you can see, uh, if you go back to that, actually, it's interesting because a movie that nobody really thinks about with the universal stuff is the eight, uh, which is, yeah. you can yeah. see that it's, that's one of the ones that they thought was a, a good feature. I think it has, uh, I believe, Bella Lugosi's in that one. Um, yes, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So here's the uh, the intro to the shock thing, and you know, uh, it, it's interesting because again, so this is 1957, you know, and shock brings your television audience what they have never had before. So, I mean, that this moment in 1957 when this syndication package went out was, was a completely new way to think about television. You know, it was a completely new way. They'd been, uh, you know, what, uh, with the Corla Pandit thing that Mike had pointed out where you had Corla staring into a camera for hours, like playing this exotica yeah. uh, piano and organ and stuff. The reason it went on for hours was because they, what are you going to put on television? You know, it was this new medium that they were still trying to figure out and everything costs money. So anything that you did, like, are you going to pay writers? Are you going to pay the whole team to go and film stuff? Are you going to pay, a, a you know, a, an announcer? Like, where's your money going to be spent? So it was much cheaper just to have Corliss sit there and stare at a camera and play piano and have some smoke and some atmosphere and stuff than it was to actually produce a show. And so, you know, you had this thing coming out, which was another option where now you had access to pre-1948 universal horror movies um, to fill those time spots and to fill that air with a lot cheaper option than actually producing stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the other things that why they did this at an urgency was the competition of the drive-ins. This was the golden age of the drive-ins. And you typically didn't see the high quality universal 
right. and other things like that. You might see a Columbia sci-fi movie on there, right. but mostly not the high-end stuff at a drive-in. And so you had B movies that were being cheaply done, and they were taking up a lot of the money of the youth. Right. And so TV was one of the places because the main cinema areas where, where these movies would have been originally shown and would be shown again were losing audience to the young people going to drive-ins. And so TV was sort of a salvation for the studios to recycle money that they were losing in the theaters right. with, these, with these kind of films. So that was their competition. That's why they said the TV audience has never seen this. There were certain people for various reasons either couldn't afford to go to drive-in or had other reasons not to with families. And so they were they were an untapped audience for this kind of material at that time. Right. Yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly right. And uh, and this is, uh, you know, as you pointed out, the, the drive throughs and that or the drive in uh, movie theaters were pulling this audience away. And so that was kind of their market testing for this as well, because they were seeing this uptick in the 50s of people going to these horror movies. And it was so it was it was drawing in revenue there. And they had all these assets from, you know, the the early studio years where they were just sitting there. And what do you do with that? How do you monetize that? You know, so shock theater right. became the, bring that back and, and enter that in and recapture that market. Um, this is the uh, the thing we were talking about earlier about how the this presser presented ways in which you could kind of draw your sponsors. And so they had these tips and it's amazing because if you look at these tips, it's like, they're teaching viral marketing in this, you know, different ways to kind of do these sort of uh, performance stunts that brought bring folks in um, and set stuff up. And there's at the end of it, it tells you uh, to mail the sponsors who showed up to your party uh, smelling salts as this kind of like kitschy, like you know, like in case you, you know, in case you can't handle the, the the thrill of this, you know, here's something to wake you up. But it's these it's it's fascinating because this, you know, again, goes into the horror hosts, which come out 57, 58, and then through the 60s and 70s, uh, start to take that idea and and bring it into the, the stuff. You have these uh, promotional records that they put out. Uh, you can still find singles from various horror hosts where they did, you know, one-off kind of like songs related to their, their shows. And it, it's all sort of drawing on this idea um, that's presented in the the initial presser. I like this line here. It says, "A shot is heard. A weird character staggers in with a knife in his back, and it falls cold in the middle of the room. He is nonchalantly carried out by two waiters." <laughs> yeah, and that's what they were recommending. So you're at a party, right? And like they're recommending this like fourth wall breaking kind of like performance art thing to happen in the party to make your sponsors excited for you know, shelling out cash to the the shock theater when really the thing that's going to excite them is like, hey, our audience share went up and your advertising is is really going to be good and you're going to make a lot of money, you know, but the, yeah. It sounded like, like it, a normal strange realities conference to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> and this is uh, Zach Early, who was a Philadelphia, New York area uh, host, who is, it, again, as we were talking about earlier, um, he did not have any interest in sci-fi or horror prior to becoming uh, this character and this horror host. He was a, a broadcast guy. He was a TV guy. He got pulled into the gig and he went 
full sail with it and uh, became one of the longest running horror hosts. But again, not a guy that was necessarily interested in horror prior to uh, doing this stuff, which makes it almost more interesting because he was coming at it from a, you know, a, a production and, and you know, kind of acting angle and how to how to play that up and created this character that became a lasting character. I think Did the Chalk Theater kind of um, normalize horror movies a little more? Were, were they more marginal before? And um, this kind of brought it, I guess, into everyone's living room. And Yeah, like, like Mike was talking about with like the, the, the youth segment of the audience was going to drive-ins and uh, going to, to movies and going to the horror movies. It was more of a youth audience. Once it hit Chalk Theater, it became a family thing. Okay. And it became a thing where, you know, people who wouldn't necessarily go to a movie to watch this were watching it on their television at night. And and like Mike said, when you've got limited options, you know, you're flipping through the three channels, you know, and this is on. So you're either going to listen to the radio, turn everything off and go to bed or, you know, read a book, or you're going to be watching a horror movie, you know? You had slumber parties would get together and watch it. Uh, people smoke dope and talked about it and those people would actually call in to these shows which is real funny because it was an underground subculture of people and they all had that common bond with the horror host yeah yeah and this, I mean, it was it was huge and these became like at the you know the county fair depending on if you had a county fair in the area like the horror host would be there at the local malls the horror host would go um it was it, this massive Thing, and we don't we don't have that anymore you know it's just not not something that exists anymore but well, we have I wanna, yeah i was just gonna say i want to touch on a uh, monster bop a mm -hmm. little bit here because you said that that's the, that the shock cinema is really where monster bop uh got its got its start and it of course took on a life of its own and kind of continued yeah we don't really see it anymore too so also when do you when did it really stop it uh, seems like disco had a lot of theme songs. Even yeah, uh, there's disco, there's disco horror. Yeah. There's actually Hot Blood, uh, which is a, a purely horror-oriented disco band, which they're awesome. It's, it's great, uh, <laughs> ridiculous uh, horror disco kind of stuff. Um, there was disco. Uh, there was horror reggae, which is amazing because this <laughs> package was uh, it was international. So in the early ska and uh, kind of like roots reggae stuff that was coming out in the Af the Caribbean diaspora in the UK, these guys were familiar with the music, um, and it comes out. This kind of the the infiltration of these sort of movies into popular music you find it in Wu Tang, right? Like Wu Tang drives from the availability of. Uh, Japanese and you know kung fu movies, Chinese productions in urban areas because of this kind of syndication package. Um, but yeah, the, the like the monster bop like stuff dies out about sixty four. It kind of drifts maybe into sixty eight. But you have it in the the psychedelic movement. You start to have like Screaming Lord Such, who's a British mm -hmm. uh, right guy who did a lot of horror kind of theme stuff and. Yeah, my, my, I mean, my whole investigation of this was why is why is it that these songs only talk about Dracula, Frankenstein, and the kind of universal monsters in that? 
So it really was, you know, shock theater really was this driver for, for this, you know, this uh, something about Gularty that you mentioned earlier. Uh, a lot of people may not know that his son was the director, Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, the famous director that did like the master and, oh, yeah. you know, is considered one of our top directors today. Yeah. He's a literal but son of Gularty. There will wow. be blood was another one of his boogie. Right. Notes, yeah. Right. And then Gullardi actually, I think his name was Ernie Anderson and he was the voice of ABC. So the golden age of the ABC movie of the week and everything, he's that voice that you hear that a lot of us just grew up with um, was also the guy who was Gullardi in Cleveland right. before that. Yeah. Cause they just pulled these guys. I mean, it was, we have a, we have a syndicated package pulled the, the staff announcer in to uh, to put on a cape or or do whatever you know put on a lab coat and create mm-hmm. this this kind of show to host this stuff and yeah the so the this the, the horror bop stuff uh, same kind of deal where um, you know the the stations were pulling in their staff to put on a costume and do the the horror hosting and because there was this market for horror music. Um, the pop music at the time, the producers were like, Hey, you know, it's Halloween's coming up, record a song and do it on this theme, you know? And so you would have, uh, these doo-wop groups and that would do one song that was Frankenstein or Dracula, um, related, you know, just really interesting. Totally. Mike, Mike, is there a, do you, do you have fond memories of monster bop songs at all? Are there any particular favorites? I'm not even familiar with the term. I'm so old, but no, like I, just, I mentioned, when I grew up in an era where, where like these horror novelty uh, albums, yeah. like Monster Surfing Time and things like that, were just ubiquitous. I yeah. mean, it, there was always this comedy thing wrapped around it. Although I was growing up at the tender age when things started getting pretty dark, uh, like at the drive-ins and things, where like the British started really doing more Satanism kind of yeah. stuff. You know, it started going from the from the scary part being motorcycle gangs to now you have Satanists and witches. And then it became mainstream, but really on ABC. The ABC movie of the week would have like Satan School for Girls and and a whole bunch of other, you know, movies like that. But I have you know, I have tons of movies like this, but I also have the music that goes with yeah. it a well well too. And you know, Monster Surfer. I remember that. And they would make little inside jokes to, you know, some of the weaknesses of the monsters and in a very practical kind of way. So it w- it was fun. They made it sort of fun. But at the same time, um, people would be unnerved by, you know, some of these movies because we were in a pretty sheltered environment. You know, and probably the whole thing with um, the Manson family and that trial was a sort of put a punchline to everything. It's like, hey, this is the real world. You all have been living in a fantasy world. You know, nuclear destruction was the only thing that really, really spooked people up to that time. You know, maybe race riots and things like that. But when when the Manson thing happened, it's like all these crazy movies had a real component to it. And it got to be Mm -hmm. not so funny anymore, uh, you know, at that part. But but the horror movie host, man, I mean, I didn't miss Fright Night, I, even though it scared me to death. There was a movie called Target Earth on it that I loved, and it was about the idea of these giant robots from Venus who landed, and I think they took over Chicago, if I remember right. Uh, 
and they look they basically look like you know like these vents that you would have off of you know uh you know some kind of duct work on your vacuum cleaner walking around but you know it was enough to freak me out and they they got a good eye beam on you i mean you were toast <laughs> which, one, so, which one was the one uh where they like was it the killer shrews where they just like dress uh, dogs up like that's another one i never forgot too because they could chew through brick yeah and the people were stuck in the house and they start chewing through the brick and uh you know what was that guy's name not cooter um roscoe p coltrane you know uh james best he was i think the the lead in that and then the guy that played festus and gunsmoke was the bad guy in it but that that was sort of a spooky movie i mean people had to, but you know the funny thing is that movie was gone for 30 40 years and i never forgot these people waddling out and turned over you know metal uh tubs and waddling out of this place while these dogs are trying to bite through it for them to get to the ocean and, you know that stuck with you as a kid and then yeah. suddenly you see the real movie as an adult and it's like wow it's just exactly like i remembered it you know but it did sure seem dist- a lot more disturbing you know, back it, then. It was, it was a kinder trauma. <laughs> it was a kinder, which is a place I recommend. I don't know, Dave, if you've ever been to kindertrauma.com. Uh, no. It's a wonderful website. I have no affiliation with it, but I do go there frequently because it's so well written and it has this real creepy looking cr- clown on the front and it says your happy childhood ends here. <laughs> and it's all about traumatic things, particularly when you were growing up that somehow clicked and gave you a sense of dread. Yeah. And often it's movies. Often it would be, now there's a whole subculture there of slasher movie fans, but just about anything, but like public service announcements um, that really sort of made you feel vulnerable as a child or a commercial. Somebody was freaked out by the little demonic imp in the Calganite uh, commercial for the dishwasher detergent. <laughs> they, would tell they just didn't like the look of him. You know? my, my, my favorite one from Kinder Trauma was where they talked about a, it was a British PSA and it was like 20 yeah. to 30 minutes long. And it was about children playing on train tracks. Yeah. Like literally, I guess it's from the seventies and literally they were such a nanny state. I, I, I guess that they were, there there was such a, there must've been a plague of, of kids just being like <laughs> creamed on train tracks. <laughs> Because this whole thing was like about like they were doing these sports that had to do with like dodging the train and they were making it like it was the Olympics. And it, it's just it's just it's just horribly bleak. And it, you know? Well, I like the one where the tractor ran over the kid, but the 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 one that's most famous was the one where Donald Pleasance plays the the ghost of hidden rivers and streams. Yes. Where he try, he's wearing that cloak and he's trying to get kids to reach out in the pond to go oh, get wow. their boat just far enough that they fall wow. in over their head. <laughs> and that's the one that traumatized most children. Wow. But I, I did a post there on post-apocalyptic movies. And there was, wow. there was a, a little video that was shown on the Ed Sullivan show that I found out from my boss at the Air Force Base, who was a really cool guy. And he was a kid at the was time. That the guy who was in the aviary? Uh, no, that's a bit, that's another guy there. That's that's another Ernie. But um, but but uh, anyway, it was an animated thing, and Ed Sullivan's like, well, on this show tonight, we 
you might want to put the kids away because it might be a little disturbing for them. And it was like a five minute video. And it was basically where you, like you see these animals running around chasing each other in the woods and they look up and hear a buzzing sound overhead and see a, you know, a bomber dropping something and kids look up and all of a sudden they turn into skeletons and flesh goes off of them. <laughs> and they showed it for like five or 10 minutes. But the reason I knew is my boss said he was sent to his room, but he listened to it through his door. And he said it absolutely terrified him just listening to it. And so I started doing some research on the airing and I found out that for one kid, he actually got to see it. He snuck out and watched it and his hair turned white permanently. (laughs) It literally turned his hair white for the rest of his life. And I thought, man, that is a kinder trauma. And so I did a post on that. And, and the movie Ladybug, Ladybug, which is another one. And then, of course, I saw the um, uh, the original airing of the day after. Oh, and yeah. we had a big, it was on a Sunday night, and we had, like, uh, some youth from our church. We went over to somebody's house, and we'd normally have our chips and dip, you know, and play ping pong. And we watched that sucker through for, I guess, three hours or whatever, and it was not a word spoken. Yes. I mean, they might as well have dropped the bomb. That's about how we felt. Have, have oh, you ever seen this? Is this is real quick? This is another. So, Monster Bop was the shock theater influencing uh, popular music, but there's also uh, there's Cold War platters, which are a, mm-hmm. a whole genre of music influenced by um, the reality of nuclear warfare. Where yeah. it entered into because in Las Vegas by the nuclear test sites, they actually had atomic parties where you could go and be sipping a martini at your hotel or whatever and stand there and watch as they set off nukes in the test sites. And actually, you know, and they had this whole thing. They had like the uh, like an atomic beauty contest where like they had you know showgirls and like mushroom cloud like like formed kind of like bikini things and stuff i mean it was crazy it was such a again another thing that in our contemporary world is totally lost is uh, which is sad because we're actually again at a point where it's a possibility you know um this sort of public recognition that uh you know nuclear weapons exist and they can be used and it could be devastating yeah, so. yeah a, a, a buddy of mine who was the best man in my wedding talked to me about when he was a kid, uh, how his mom, he was he had a single parent, a mother, working mother, and about her stacking canned goods and stuff that they had canned in the cellar during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. And he experienced it as an adolescent in what it felt like because everybody they were around there in southern Indiana was convinced this was it. Yeah. And and, and I can't imagine what that does to a child's psyche when he sees the worry of his mother who can't guarantee to him that she can protect him. Yeah. And, you know, they're going down in a, in a little makeshift bunker and who knows what they'll come out and what will be out there when they come out. Yeah. You, you talked about, uh, we, we, we need to get over to Tim here, but uh, you talked about the day after. I mean, have you ever seen Threads? It was like the British like version of it. Well, of course I have it, yeah. Adam. Of course, but uh, <laughs> I've seen I've seen most of it, and it actually is is far more disturbing and gruesome. Yes, and of course more thought provoking, which most British stuff is like that. It's actually 
takes a more intelligent take on it. Um, I mean, it's more gruesome, but yet it's in a way more tasteful because it wasn't just pure exploitation like some parts of the day after. And I'll yeah. never forget after they aired the day after, they had a a gr groups of different citizens would get together on TV and talk about the implications, like housewives and people from different parts of society, and they would debate you know, what it meant to them. And they're part of their society and people like them. And then the next night after the day, the day after they had the David Letterman show on. And he also, the David Letterman had a group of concerned parents and other people debating what had just been shown on Sunday night, which was the facts of life. Girls go to Hawaii, <laughs> which was, which was aired at the same time. And so Terry Gar and the other, Concerned parents debated about the facts of life. Girls go to Hawaii. Is there anything that else was we also want to traumatizing? We want to say, David, you want to say about the uh, about the horror host stuff? Uh, be thankful to them because they gave us our our contemporary culture. Right. Yeah. right, right, right. Hey, can I mention that the for my favorite host, the Fearmonger, who I even commemorated in a slot car that I was racing in Louisville the other day. Um, if you go to spookyblue.com slash Fright Night, you can learn all about It's a great story. And, and uh, David, I want to tell you about that. You might get a real hoot looking at it. And you'll see um, the fear monger in his normal guise. His name's Charlie Kissinger. He's an actor. But the best part of it is that he was the main muse for my favorite director, William Girdler, who was uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I mean, you could forget D.W. Griffith. William Girdler is my favorite, favorite Louisville director. He directed Abby, which was the black exploitation exorcist. And, um, it is he did, awesome. uh, it's awesome. It is an awesome movie. He the did, same guy uh, who played is in that. And his first movie, he, yeah, William Marshall, the first movie he did was asylum of Satan in Louisville. They're all shot in Louisville in 1971. And actually one of his advisors he had was Michael Aquino on the set. Oh, wow. And I was able to find a story because they did some kind of satanic evocation and they had Michael Aquino write it oh, to wow. make it authentic. Yeah, to make and they, they, they had the, because he lived in that area. And yeah. so they had the, the, in fact, I was showing this to uh, Recluse, I guess, sending the information. Um, they had some girls around there and it was so realistic, they said, according to like satanic people, that the girl passed out in the middle of it, one of the, like the little Vestal Virgins. And uh, Michael Aquino and his wife ran over there and started whispering some kind of incantation in her ear. And her parents saw it and tried to pull them away and stop them. And it suddenly brought the girl to and she stood up. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, Solomon Satan's around there. And the other one that's a really sort of a highbrow, more intellectual movie called Three on a Meat Hook. Uh, you might want to catch that, too. Because he his next movie was Three Auto Meat Hook down in Louisville. It was all drive-in. Has the best trailer. If you look on YouTube for Three on the Meat Hook trailer, it's the awesome trailer. Um, but he eventually did the Manitou and Grizzly. If you remember the ripoff of Jaws called Grizzly, he hit big time, and then he died in a helicopter crash. But if you go to WilliamGirdler.com, you'll see how the guy who was the fearmonger starred in all those movies. Wow. Like he was one of the main doctors in Grizzly, and you'll find him. He he was the main <laughs> Satanist in the Asylum of Satan. Was the guy who played the fearmonger. So that's the last I'll say. Oh, the last thing too. 
if you want to see another thing of this era, go to Future Quake, the archive of Future Quake shows. There's a show with Tim Ormond. And Tim Orman was the son of Ron Orman that did a lot of these exploitation films. A lot of them that was the kind of marketing you were talking about, but at the drive-in. And they even did yeah. the hygiene films as well, too, where they would pass out the little health department books. But yeah. they did the most disturbing one of these movies ever made. It was a Christian-themed movie later called If Horse If Her Horses Tire oh, see if Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Done in 1971, and it's probably one of the only Christian gore movies you'll ever see anywhere. It's uh, where um, it's where Negative Land got the sample for the song "Christianity Is Stupid." Wow. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I'll just leave you that. with that. You haven't seen it. That's a great research. But but if you want to hear an interview with it, you'll find out how Bella Lugosi was his godparent, his godfather, and his mother managed the Three Stooges. And now his dad produced Roller Derby and Lash LaRue movies and eventually did the Mesa of Lost Women. And uh, well, we saw The Monster and the Stripper. Wasn't that right, Adam? That yeah, was the, the, it was the movie. Was also, or the Monster and the, the one Stripper. that was filmed in the Nashville Speedway, too. We saw that one. The Grim Reaper. The Grim Reaper. Yeah. So you can find a lot of those on YouTube. So just to add to your research, David. Yeah, thank you. That's that's fantastic. Uh, Rod Ormond is actually uh, there's a section in Greg and uh, Adam Gorightly's book in the contactee book on Ron Ormond because he started getting into the contactee stuff too. Yep. So let's uh, let's bring Tim in here. Tim has been patiently waiting as we talked about bad movies and bad <laughs> film directors, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, your new book that you've yes. got and it's cool that we're doing this in a visual way so you can sh you could show it yeah I'm, is this going to be your format from now on um, no it's just for halloween yeah we're, we might we, do more stuff like this but it's we're just gonna do, we're gonna do stuff like this um there's a phrase i don't know if you guys heard of it it's a face for radio yeah <laughs> i know I mean, it, right? all, all of us, all of all of us. <laughs> this is why i do a podcast are you gonna yes. broad? Are you gonna broadcast this on Halloween? Is this when this is airing for normal people? Is on Halloween? I think we're, uh, we're this is gonna be the show probably for for the week of Halloween. Because if something like really horrible and terribly tragic wipes out large numbers of people, it's gonna be bad that we're all laughing as they broadcast this live. You know, because we're <laughs> ignorant of it. So, just thought I'd make you think well, of that. You know, that's well, that's a good disclaimer. We've got the disclaimer in there. You know, like if anything, oh, wow. now until happens, it's a nightmare. We were laughing now, and and that happened later. Right. So, so if a, if a quarter of the planet's population got wiped out between now and airing, sorry. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. right we had some laughs right now. It was all good. Right. So. Always look on the bright side of life. Tim, tell us about this new book, and you tell us a scary story too. A book. We were hoping you knew some. We were hoping you knew some Pennsylvania Dutch Halloween stories. I don't really. I mean, you know, there's, there's. I'm sure there are some, but I'm, I'm ill prepared. Sorry. Are there some? Are there some traditions from the area that are unique? Um, around Halloween time. No, not see Halloween. You, you know, the, the Pennsylvania Dutch celebrated it, but the, Halloween was really brought by the the Celtic people. Um, the 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 Pennsylvania Dutch, you know, the German people 
their spooky time is actually Christmas. Like that, yeah. it sort of starts at Halloween, but like the, the the main like Christmas was the time for ghost stories. Christmas was the time for, you know, our our Santa Claus Bell Snickle was, was the wild man. I mean, he came out of the the, mm-hmm. the, the wilds out of the woods and the the hills to scare you. So there is some, you know, but uh, most of those traditions were were imported, you know, from the from the Celtic people. Okay, cool. And I'm sure someone's watching this going, you're wrong. So yeah, probably somewhere I'm, I'm forgetting something. So. <laughs> so, so Tim, you've got this new book out and we can actually see some of the illustrations. Uh, yeah. If I can figure out again, I'm like a camera thing there, there, no, there, that works. there, that works. there, there, Appar- you got it. You got it. I can't see it. that. Apparitions, illustrations of the other, my new book. Just it's all um, drawings. That make it, I, make uh, it full screen, Adam. Make Tim full screen. Yeah, about that. Did you did you do this by automatic writing? No, 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 no. So you were in full control of your faculties when you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I can make myself full screen, but I can't make Tim okay. full screen. You can pull us out, I think, for a minute, maybe. Well, okay. It's all my black and white illustrations I've done for various um, ghosts, and and there's a section on werewolves. There's a section on Mothman, good old Toad Man, and then we get into Alva Twitch and. Bigfoot, of course. It's more Bigfoot than anything else because, you know, that's where I live. But uh, it's all my black and white illustrations that, that I've done. Um, well, not all of them. It's my favorite ones I've done for my other books and then for the podcast and and other various other projects, some of the stuff I've done for, for the band and so forth. But uh, I had so much, and it looked like it was time to do a, a collection of illustrations. People were asking, not everybody could afford uh, to buy original art and I can't afford to make prints of everything. So uh, this is a way that, you know, people can relatively inexpensively own a bunch of my artwork. Cool. It yeah, looks it great. Looks, it looks really, really nice. Thank you. Yeah. So I also, I had to squeeze an extra book out between the two volumes of where the footprints end just to annoy Josh. <laughs> <laughs> As long as you can annoy, annoy Josh, that's totally, that's totally fine. The full, the full, you know. What can I do to annoy Josh? <laughs> so, is it is it um how 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 much of a time span is all the work? Is it like your your whole? Um... No, no. I'm going. I so I want to do like a a whole like retrospective going back to whenever you know uh you know the the 90s at least um. But I'll do a Kickstarter for that, and I'll do like a hardcover book. I think if I can get it funded, this is more of like a just, just let's just do a book of the paranormal stuff, and uh, kind of. So this goes back to I did a, a kind of a music project where I did a bunch of of uh, ghost illustrations called Undeath back in the like I want to say around two thousand 
2009, 2010, somewhere like that. So that's that's probably the oldest stuff that's in there. And then okay. uh, it goes up. Most of it's within the past, you know, four or five years. Most of the stuff has been there. Cool. And it's all it's all my black and white pen and ink stuff. Um, I don't do a lot of, of color work. I, I kind of live it with uh, in the pen and ink world. So um, one day maybe I'll do get some of my paintings and stuff published as well. But. Well, we were talking a little bit earlier. Uh, actually, Dr. Future brought this up about, you know, because we were talking about Vampira and we were talking about like black and white and how much more effective and ethereal and nightmarish black and white is over color. Yeah, um, it, it certainly can be. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to leave room, you know, for, for, for other in there. Um, I just, I never took to, to cut my daughter understands color, you know, in ways that, that I just don't like, I, I look at her artwork and she's, she's doing this stuff with color that I'm just like, I don't, I don't think that way, you know? Um, she just has a grasp of it. That, that's amazing to me. But uh, for whatever reason, you know what it was when I was, Ooh, late elementary school. I think it was uh, Bernie Wrights and a comic artist. He he published uh, his illustrations to Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and uh, they were just stunning. And I saw them, and that I said, I want to do that. I want to do that. Uh, and uh, what is this? You know, this is pen and ink. Well, give me a pen and ink. I'm going at it. And uh, so that was, you know, he was a big influence on me and, and those, those classic comic artists, that sort of second wave after Kirby and Ditko. I like those guys, but that sort of second wave after them, the Bernie Wrightson and, and Mike Kaluta was a big one. And those guys that, you know, as a kid, just, I grew up on the farm, but there was no other kids my age around, you know? So I was bored. What about, what about Neil Adams? Did you like him in that second I like, generation? I like Neil Adams, but he did a lot of work for DC and I was just a little Marvel kid. You know, my okay. brother was my brother was DC, and I was all about Marvel because uh, the the first comic I bought was, uh, uh, or that someone bought for me was a Spider Man comic, and I just I yeah. like, I was five years old and just wow, you know, it's like what? And then my mom told me someone drew that, you know what I mean? Like those were yeah. drawings. I didn't know what I thought they were before that, but she said, you know, there's somebody drew, and I was like, wow, okay, all right, I you know, this is so my whole world changed from there, but. Uh, yeah, that that stuff. So so horror was a huge part of it. Like Bernie Wrights, and he was doing those. You know, you want to talk about like great magazines that came out of that time. Of course, you had Famous Monsters, but the uh-huh. Warren Publishing Group had Creepy and Eerie and Vampirella. Those magazines, amazing, amazing. I I was a manager for a comic shop in Maryland uh, in the late '80s. And someone brought in just the entire run of, of creepies and most of the run of eeries, and I just bought them for oh, myself. Wow. I said I have like <laughs> the whole the whole run of creepies. It's it's just amazing the artwork they were doing, and those I mean just it's fantastic stuff. And, did uh, did yeah, e, did EC publish any of those? No, sorry, that was know, Warren know. Warren Publishing, but they were trying to bring back that EC. Thing. In fact, they, they the original issues they got a bunch of the original EC artists to do it, and then they ended up grabbing people like Wrightson and uh, Jeffrey Jones and Richard Corbin and all you know these guys that these great guys that were doing this, like really fantastic work. But the, I can't believe they're not worth more, quite honestly, because like the art in them is just stunning, stunning. Yeah, 
but yeah, yeah that, that came out of that whole like monster culture that you're talking about with like the you know the the drive-ins and stuff and the, the famous monsters and all that yeah and the famous monsters was published by warren was it yeah 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 so. warren warren saw when the uh when that shock theater package that we were talking about came out um warren contacted ackerman for a one-off magazine to kind of capture that like moment they thought it was going to be a real quick kind of craze but mm -hmm. once it lasted they they actually put out you know that famous monsters didn't stop until last year when it yeah stopped. Um, yeah after, i remember being a little kid and going to the dime store and and them having puzzles with the cover of of eerie and and creepy and stuff and they had eerie and creepy magazine i always wanted to get them my mom never let me she wouldn't like yeah. <laughs> But uh, they're, they're so good. The illustration in that is so amazing. You're right. I mean, that I that was another thing kind of in my research that I ran across. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like you just like swim in these. There's a there's a vampire one. It's I don't know what I can't remember what it's called. It may be a Dracula takeoff or something, but it was a Warren Publishing psychedelic like oh. vampire uh, magazine. And it's the I think he's retrieving it right now. Uh, yeah, hold on. Yeah, it's amazing. It's oh, it's, it's stunning. It, it was published in yeah. Europe, but Warren published it in the U.S. It's it's fantastic. Yeah. The illustrate, yeah, because Warren was just like heavy metal, where they were they were taking the Italian and the French, and they were mm -hmm. like, "This stuff is good. How do we bring this to the American audience?" And we've got to, you know, kind of turn it into this other thing but they're still taking from that that art aesthetic and that that dracula book that you just showed the art in there is i mean the illustration is mind-boggling oh yeah it's it's, it's fantastic and uh, yeah that's a hard one to find if yeah uh, if you run across that one pick it up um yeah they uh well and they had like the horror host thing too so you know it was uncle creepy Yep. And he would sort of host each story. He would talk, you know, introduce each story. And then uh, Cousin Eerie was the yep. other. And then, and then Vampirella started out as that, but then she kind of became her own sort of character with, you know, yeah. her adventures and stuff. But uh, yeah, so so they really were like kind of locked into that that same realm. That's yeah. Like, yeah I love that and that's, that's awesome. Like, so in that way, like, that's kind of cool, Adam. Did you realize that when you set this up that in some way this uh, this all sort of fed into the the theme? Because <laughs> now you're well, you're out I mean, tradition. Your, your art your art like stands up to that that level of quality. Thank you. Well, see, I mean, they can, they I those guys when they can do it panel to panel to panel, and I've done some comics works, and I and I've tried to do comic work. And to keep up that level of quality, panel to panel to panel, yeah. to me, is like I'd rather just do single illustrations. It's so much easier. Those guys, wow, so talented, so talented. Yeah, I, to, be I just, to do it quickly like that, yeah, that's that's something to to really consider. When you you know, I, you do like true illustration work, like true beautiful illustration work. I do like crappy. Uh, I can use a Sharpie marker and kind of like wiggle it, you know, illustration stuff. So it's, it's sort of like, I look at my stuff and then I see your stuff. And then there's the, like the, the illustration, like the, the Warren publishing stuff, you know, and it's, I totally feel what you're saying. Cause it's, 
it is way different to do one piece that has you can balance it and you can look at all the balance but then to think about it sequentially mm -hmm. an entire storyline and to grab that you know that that balance for the whole thing you know it's it's a totally different way to think about it i have started and left unfinished at least five graphic novels at this point because it's, yeah. i will start them and then just i don't like what i'm see so i you know i quit and uh, you know, so maybe someday a lot of people say, why don't you do comics? You should do comics. <laughs> it's not that easy. Yeah. I, I wish I could, I, you know, I wish I could, but, uh, yeah, those, those guys that can do it. Wow. Like, like, and to get that, there's a different feel to sequential art too, where, where like I, I'll trend to, because I'm so detail oriented. I'll like, if I show somebody reading a book, I would want to like show them turning every damn page. And those guys know like just enough, you know, they'll, they'll, right. they'll, they'll get the story across with, with a lot less, but uh, yeah, it, it's, there's a real, there's an art to it for sure. And I always wanted to be a comic artist, but uh, I never, I, I did one story you can find out there. Uh, Sex Kinks of the Rich and Famous, number one for Ripoff Press. They lived up to their name. And uh, <laughs> I did uh, Andy Warhol. I, I wanted uh, anyone else, but they, they gave me Andy Warhol. It is not my best work. I'm not super proud of that. Will, but, will we ever get a Uncanny Adventures of Flannel Man? <laughs> well, you know, designing the, the books... Um, Designing where the footprints end, and like if you look at my books that I've published, not my art book, my, my other books, you'll see like I'm playing with design as I as I go through. You know, uh, the first one's kind of pretty basic; it's got illustrations and text, you know. And then the Bigfoot books are laid out; the historical ones are laid out more like newspaper. So I'm playing with that idea, like yeah. I, newspaper articles. I want them to look more like newspaper. That cool, like chapter headings and things like that. Yeah, and then don't look behind you. Then I'm doing like like mastheads and 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 uh, spot illustrations along with the full illustrations and then i continue that into where the footprints end going forward i think i'm going to really design my books like you're going to be cool like like illuminated text kind of yeah and uh things like because I, I that's super fun for me so you know i like writing but but designing is is you know just i just love it like i love yeah, books there's so. a different feel when you when you bring the typography into it. Yeah, when you actually like carry the the illustration and the the different playing on weight and theme and and the ideas that are expressed through the illustrations, and carry that into the way that the letters and the typography work. Like well, if you if you look at um, so the the classic age of illustration was like mid eighteen hundreds through nineteen twenty or or so yeah. roughly. I mean, you know. And they they made books beautiful. I mean, they, yeah. their books were all beautiful. And it wouldn't just be, well, sometimes it would just be an illustration, but often these illustrators would, um, this is a reproduction, but but Willie Pogany, he's, he's, he's great. So this is his Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and it's just every page yeah. Is, yeah. is designed. It's, yeah. you know, yeah. and and he put this idea into into every single page, the, the um, I mean, look at that title page. It's just stunning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's and 
because I'm dealing with so much old folklore and this stuff, I thought, you know, yeah. I, that's the feeling I want to, I want to pull in, into my books going forward. So we'll see if I can, I can pull it off. Cause it's going to take a lot longer to do books that way. <laughs> yeah. But in this, do uh, self-publishing, is that possible? Can you do that with self-published stuff? Or they, yeah. yeah. So like the, the art book um, is not print on demand because print on demand, like my other books are all print on demand. And most people's are these days. So 95% of them will look fine. Right. And right. some like probably even higher than that. It's probably 98%. Uh, but every now and then you'll get one that's printed real light. And I thought, you know, with an art book, I don't want even 2% to yeah. not look good. So I, you know, I paid for these and, and uh, outright. So I have a big stack of books here and, and uh, have to warehouse them. I, I said, I was never going to do that. I, I ran a record label for years. I still have a basement full of records and CDs. So I'm not warehousing books. I'm not doing that once I started publishing books, but here we are. Uh, but I just didn't like the idea of like, like I said, even, you know, 2% of, of people getting a book that, that didn't look uh, good. So, you know, I think it's going to depend on the book. Sometimes I'm, they're going to be, if it's going to be an art book, I'm going to have to, you know, have it printed. But uh, some of them I'll, I'll, I'll have to, you know, they're going to have to be print on demand and they're just going to have to be, people just have to understand that it's not an art book. It's a, it's a book with some art in it, you know. Yeah. I'm really excited about like, uh, because of the stuff I encountered through research, I really like the kind of mess up stuff. So I'm obsessed with this idea of eventually publishing in Mexico City or Nigeria, just because I love when I get the books from there that they're slightly offset. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's just like the the machine wasn't quite set up right, you know, and I love that, like the the kind of weird aesthetic with what you're doing. You know, I can see how you wouldn't, <laughs> you don't want, you don't want like a really detailed illustration. Like that works for the kind of like weird sort of. Yeah. Story. Why? I mean, I came a thousand percent out of zine culture and, you know, hardcore yeah. scene and, and, and zine culture in, in the eighties. And, and uh, I mean, I, I credit that with giving me the confidence to do everything I do. Cause it's just, I don't know how to do half the stuff I do when I started. I never knew how to publish a book. It's like, I'm going to write a book. I'll publish a book. I'll figure it out. Do it yourself. And that, that comes from that whole DIY zine thing. So I totally get that, like that zine aesthetic, you know, that, that rough, you know, cause uh, I mean, I have boxes and boxes of this stuff from the eighties, you know, I'm going to have to find a zine archive somewhere to give this stuff to, cause I'm sure a lot of this stuff doesn't exist anymore. Um, yeah, that's well. That's what we were talking about earlier with the horror hosts. You have to. You have. You have like a moral responsibility to pass that on to a to an archive of some sort. Yeah, looking up the horror host stuff like that was live TV and it doesn't exist. And culture is just like that. It's these printed ephemera that was so was super limited and mm -hmm. can't be can't be replicated and and exists only in the forms where it where it's sitting. Like there's a there's a documentary on uh, Mike Diana Boiled Angel. I don't know if you guys have have seen that documentary. Um, mm -hmm. It's on Prime, I think. I'm not sure what it's called. He was the guy that was. Um, uh, they brought him up on obscenity charges because he drew cartoons. Oh, in, yeah. in Florida. Um, 
there's a documentary on Amazon. It's a pretty good documentary about the whole thing. And uh, finally, the comic book legal defense fund, I think, stepped in and and helped him with these these court things. But they they were ridiculous. These these judges in Florida had passed had told him like he wasn't even allowed to draw anymore. Like how do you do? That? <laughs> you know, um, he ended up moving from Florida, I think, and and you know the the producers of this documentary or something ended up paying his fine so he could actually go yeah. back to Florida. But um, I have some art, I believe in the issue that, that got him, uh, we used to, we used to trade and he did art for my, I did a, a horror zine back then. I believe it's the issue that got him in trouble. What he had done is he had sent, I think he had sent an issue to a prisoner and the, the uh, warden of the prison saw this thing and he called the police in Mike Diana's town. I think this is the way it was. This is the way I remember it. I'm not sure if this is my memory's entirely accurate, but, and then they said like, you know, this guy's doing, doing this and it's just cartoons and they're, they're ridiculous. I mean, they're, they're just silly cartoons, but he's doing really violent, very sexual, you know, yeah. cartoons. And uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure one of my, I think it, it was the issue of his that uh, it was, not super proud of the cart. Yeah, you know, I was 18 years old when I drew it, but yeah, I think it was a zombie eating a baby that that was in in there. That uh, that it, I think that was the issue that got him uh, got him in trouble. So, uh, well, and we were talking about that earlier with the shock theater stuff because once it hit, once you know these universal horror movies hit television early on when they had been first shown, uh, but we had mentioned earlier about Dracula. Which you know, Bela Lugosi's Dracula now is uh, there's nothing shocking about that, movie right? Now. Right. But in the early 1930s, everybody was like, "Whoa, like, no, mm -hmm. you can't watch this." This because there was actually stuff written about it, like people's lives are so heavy with the burden of existence right now because everything's so fast and so mm. dated with information. And this is in the 30s, right? Like <laughs> they don't. If they watch Dracula, like, why would you do that to them? You're torturing them more with this morbid, horrible stuff, you know? And so that, yeah, that carrying on to the zine thing, like what you're talking about, where this art, you know, and you know, it's interesting framed against the current situation with the pandemic and that where they're finding that people who watch horror movies are actually more psychologically stabilized to you know, kind of deal with the situation and the stresses and all that because they mm. dealt with this fictional stuff, you know? So it's it's sort of uh, the creativity of, of the, the morbid and the kind of grotesque is a way that people have developed to deal with the contemporary situation, you know? So it's, it's amazing that the courts react that way, you know, or the public reacts that way to this art. And it's like, that's what happens. Yeah. Well, like, I, that was deep in the satanic panic right, right there too. That, yeah. that down. I mean, which, that was... which if you look at it though, like that's weird because the, the thing that strikes me about the satanic panic is the, the Catholic church at the time was deeply involved in covering up pedophiles. <laughs> and you have the, you have the satanic panic come out where it's like, there's ritualistic pedophilia going on and and that you know and everybody's like oh that was goofy and stupid and it's like no they were doing it but it was in the church mm. like this wasn't you know it wasn't satanist it was literally the catholic church that was was cultivating this this opportunity for these predators you know and it 
the evangelical church had the same thing going on. You know, yeah, I mean? anytime there's a power structure, not anytime, yeah. but often when there's a power structure and, and there's children involved, yeah, you know, there's going to be some bad actors. Yeah, and then the, the then the artist though, the artist kind of living this milieu starts to generate art that mm -hmm. is basically the kind of the the warning sign, like hey, like this is cooking in the that somewhere is this is happening, and the artists are starting to to reflect on this violence and this this thing, you know, and then the system's like that's evil. The artist, you know, like aiming right. at this when it's when it's actually something that's going on in culture and it's something that has to be addressed and that's why the artist is creating art that addresses it you know i think you're muted adam nice i think that's a good place i think that's a good place to stop yeah this was very very good this was really cool this this was quite a discussion tonight i mean we covered uh Tim, uh, tell people where yeah, they can find it. It's the called book Apparitions and, uh... Illustrations of the Other. Right now, you have to get it from me. Amazon's not taking new publishers at their warehouse. So hopefully, I'll get it on Amazon. Eventually, I'm trying. Uh, but right now, you got to get it from me. You can go to strangefamiliars.com. There's links to our Etsy shop in there. You can get it at our Etsy shop. Our Etsy shop name is Lost Grave. If you just want to go to Etsy. And there's a post up on Strange Familiars where you can order it you know, direct from there, too. Uh, but yeah, and any copy for me, come sign. You don't have to ask. I'll, I just sign them before I put them in, in the, the envelopes go out. So, um, yeah, it's doing well, but, um, you know, I appreciate, uh, everybody, you know, I like writing, but, but I like illustrating too. So happy to do a collection of that. So thanks for letting me come on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. On, on special request, will you m make any bound in human skin that we can purchase? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not getting it. No, no, no. <laughs> that's for offline. That is offline. Doctor, uh, okay. Sorry, I brought that into up. Stuff, people think so. I collect skulls too. At some point, I'll, I'll not right now. I'll figure out a way to show you guys all the skulls. And I, I collect them since I was a kid. And people think, oh, you're into gore, and because you draw this, then no, I can't. Like, I hate it. It's disgusting to me. I, I will collect skulls if they're nice and clean and sun bleached. But if there's like gore hanging on them, nah, I'm not, I'm not, I'll just leave them sit. That's not for me. So uh, I'm actually a little squeamish when it comes to, to that. Uh, just leave them, leave them sitting in the acid bath a little longer. I find it works for me. <laughs> there you go. There you All right, go. guys. And, Thanks, everybody. And, and to say, too, that you are the host of the Excellent Strange Familiars podcast. Thank you. Yes. And uh, Dr. Future, where can people find you, find your blog? Yeah, two masters and two gospels, volume one, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Kobo, Walmart, wherever you want to get it. Uh, if you go to the two spies report at wordpress.com, I'm always causing trouble there. Uh, or Mike Bennett Listen to my shows at futurequake.com. And, and you were talking about um, some of this stuff being ephemeral. Someone took three of my feature length movies, some, rogue canadian and uploaded them to youtube so if you go look up nightmare on neptune or lord of the shadows or what now you can see a 20 something year old mike bennett fighting vampires and stuff so yes, yes. anyway and uh, mr metcalf uh david metcalf.wordpress.com david b metcalf on twitter david metcalf on facebook uh 
All right. And of course, us at Conspiranormal. All right, Sergio. I think this is uh, almost two hours, and this is only part one. Yeah. Happy Halloween, Halloween hey. buddy. Happy Halloween week. Happy Halloween. Hey, yeah. hey, I got a last question for Adam. Why did you make my eyes look like Mike Pence behind you? <laughs> 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 Here we are. Okay. Welcome back to the Conspiranormal Halloween episode, the video edition. If you're listening to the audio, well, you're just really missing out. Yeah, so, it looks like, Adam, you've got some kind of ectoplasm floating above your head there. Yes, yes, I do. Um, and it's trying to get to Michael My It's trying to get to Michael Myers. It's part of the uh, the effort to defeat the evil that is Michael Myers. So, okay. you know, figured what better to uh, you got to pull it out of your nose and stuff. Yeah, yeah, That's right, like right cheesecloth. Yeah, you're not supposed to give away the secrets. No, oh, come on, cheesecloth. What, what what are you doing? So as always, you can kind of see just like the top, the just my head. You know, I got it. Yeah, I can't. Michael Myers, I can't block. You know, he gets he gets kind He's of got mad. A disembodied head. He's just mm -hmm. a floating head. So we thought we would spend the rest of this Halloween special with our good friend Kiki Dombrowski, who yeah. we're going to talk about kind of like the origins of Halloween and kind of like what she does as a practicing witch. Yes, we've got a <laughs> we've got a real witch. <laughs> Maybe you can help me to help defeat Michael Myers back here. But, uh, <laughs> I um, <laughs> I um, wow! You could defeat Michael Myers. I I don't I don't know. I I was saying this before we started recording. I don't really watch horror movies, which is really funny because I know that Halloween everybody watches horror movies, and like I'm gonna watch Hubie Halloween, <laughs> you know, and, and Hocus Pocus. I don't so so I don't know what the the, the the legend is about Michael Myers and how you defeat him. Is he the one that you drown in the lake? Um, that might be Jason. I'm not entirely sure, <laughs> but I mean, but it doesn't matter. I mean, either both of them just keep on coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it right. Really, it, it really doesn't matter. You 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 can't explain it. You know, so that's why uh, you need supernatural means. That's probably the only right. the only way. The independent the independent film channel for some odd reason was showing all the Friday the Thirteenth movies, and uh, it's funny because Friday the Thirteenth Part Four is the final chapter. Okay. You know, but they came, but then it did so well they had to come out with Friday the Thirteenth Part Five. Oh my God! Wait, is, is Friday the Thirteenth the one with Freddy Krueger? That's the one no. with Jason. Oh, the night, nightmare, nightmare. On, not, yeah, yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street is the one with uh, Freddy Krieger, but they did do a Freddy versus Jason. Ooh, wasn't there one with a leprechaun in it too? There was yeah. a horror movie with yeah. a leprechaun, and he went to space, and yeah. 
It's a series just called Leprechaun. There's at least one movie of any of those series where they go to space. Yeah. You know, because you got to put your slot. I don't think Michael Myers has been to space. I don't think anybody's quite. Leprechaun has been to the hood. And Mm -hmm. Leprechaun in the Hood is my favorite Leprechaun movie. Oh, my God. I think they should send Michael to Mars because now we're talking about sending people to Mars. Shouldn't we have a horror movie on Mars where, you know, humanity is trying to rebuild their civilization on a Martian planet? But lo and behold, there's this. This is my pretend butcher's knife up off my head, like chasing yeah. Don't, uh, don't, don't go in the basement. I don't know. Don't don't give Hollywood any ideas, please. Okay. <laughs> uh, we, we thought this would be really cool to get you on because we covered so much of like the Amer- the origins of so much of American uh, commercial Halloween that uh, we would take it back a little bit uh, with you and uh, go into like the the origins and the more traditional. Uh, view of Halloween or where it really, really comes from. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm so excited to hear that. And it's really interesting too, because, you know, I think that, that the way we are currently celebrating Halloween really pays tribute to, to perhaps what the, the, the origins of, of Halloween are. Um, the, Halloween is said to have kind of its roots in this Celtic holiday called Samhain. And um, when you hear me say Samhain, it's actually spelled Samhain. So a lot of people, like, if you've ever seen the word Samhain, it's pronounced Samhain. It's a Gaelic word. Um, And I believe that the word means summer's end. I read somewhere that it means September, possibly. Um, But basically, Samhain was this celebration that was, um, it was the end of the harvest for for the Celts. So this was the last time of the year where you can just gather up the final goodies in the garden or, um, you know, get the animals prepped for winter before the the, um, the weather turned. Um, And so this is is an oldie, this is an oldie but a goldie holiday. Unfortunately, the Celtic tribes didn't write their history down. You can't, you know, find a PDF of some ancient, you know, Celtic text. They shared their information orally. So what we know about the, the these ancient Celtic people come from the observations of outsiders um, and from what we, you know, gather from archaeological evidence. But um, Samhain was actually described in this calendar called the Caligny calendar. And I hope I'm saying these words right, the Caligny calendar, which came from the first um, century common era. And it, 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 was, it was listed as this very, very important holiday. And so I think that we could talk about, you know, the evolution of Samhain over the centuries, but I think it's really important to say that that this original holiday had many, many valuable meanings to it other than just, you know, it was the end of a harvest. Um, It was also a time when people gathered, they celebrated. Um, There was a little bit of housekeeping that happened during this holiday because it was considered the end of the year. They collected taxes. There are beliefs that um, there are theories that a lot of legal work was, was kind of done and, 
and people kind of did some diplomatic work. Um, so there was the housekeeping and then also taking care of the agriculture and making sure all the food was ready for the rest of the, the cold season. Um, but there was also this pleasurable side to Samhain as well where uh, there was drinking, um, it was probably another, you know, th there was some rowdiness to it in the sense that people would would, would be out and celebrating. Um, there were bonfires, so there were big fire celebrations outdoors. Um, it was also considered a time of courtship. So there's, you know, this, I don't know, I, I guess that there was this sensual side to Halloween as well, or I'm sorry, Samhain, I should say, where people maybe we're, we're, we're getting together to, to flirt. So, you know, it's kind of funny that, that this year you can get your sexy COVID-19 costume. I mean, <laughs> maybe they had the equivalent back then, you know, their costumes. Um, like the plague or something. <laughs> they, they, they've got to have a sexy plague doctor costume for, for this year. They must. I've it's got to be there. Yeah. It's got to be there. It's got to be there. Can't go without it. Um, so I think that the, the, the thing about Samhain that I think is really, that, that sticks with people a lot when they, when they hear Samhain is, is this phrase that you hear over and over again this time of year is that the veil is very thin right now. So I don't know, have you guys heard that? Like mm -hmm. the, the veil yeah. is thin. Um, and so there was this belief that um, the boundary between our world and the world of spirit was very thin at this time. And it was, you know, at Samhain, it's really easy to kind of go between our world and the other world. And the other world to the Celts wasn't necessarily just ghosts, you know, it was the fae as well. So, so fairy, uh, the folk, um, and not just Tinkerbell fairies either, but, but a very, very, very diverse uh, race of, of magical beings, um, for better or for worse. Um, it, gets, it gets complicated. Totally, totally. And and it's really interesting, too, because, I, I mean, like, I'm, I'm sure that we could have a really good conversation where we could talk about, you know, um, the abductions and the encounters that are described in folklore and literature and mythology about Faye and compare it to modern day you know, alien abductions or Bigfoot sightings or um, hauntings in the forest. It, it, there's some sort of similarity that happens. So I think that it's fascinating that the, that the Celtic kind of just said, well, the other world has is the world of, of what we can't see with our five senses. Um, or perhaps it's another dimension. Maybe that's where bizarro us sits and <laughs> does a podcast you know and, and it's on a different who knows what's over there but but our ability to kind of interact with it apparently is is much easier at Samhain um and like I said for better or for worse because it you know when when you read about the those ancient descriptions of the fairy um and how people reacted or responded to them it wasn't something people wanted to do people weren't calling and it's kind of interesting because sort of the metaphysical evolution of of the of the fairy and and our desire to connect with something magical has made it very very inviting but it's interesting because in the past people were doing all sorts of protection to keep <laughs> keep them away and keep them out um and maybe that's because 
you know, it's not meant to be a relationship where we just benefit from, from having this magical Legolas like friend. Um, I don't know why I thought of Legolas. I guess that's what everybody wants when they, you know, they cross into the other world. Um, some sort of Lord of the Rings experience. Um, it's, it's not necessarily like that, you know? Um, so anyways, uh, Samhain, I, I, I just think it's such a fun holiday. Um, it's, it's very mystical. It's very magical. And I think too, that, that physically we react to it, at least for people. Now, now you guys know that like, I'm, I'm really like on the Jimmy Buffett Island right now, where, you know, it's like 80, the water is still almost 80 degrees. You can go swimming. But I think that, that for maybe regions that are, you, you know, feel the, the shifting of the seasons, I think we physically respond to that. Like, how do you feel when it gets darker earlier? How do you feel that that first time you go outside and it's actually like cool and crisp and you, you could smell like the smoke of a fire burning? Um, I mean, it, it does something to us. It really does shift how we feel. And I think in a good way too, I don't think anybody mm -hmm. dislikes that cozy first touch of autumn. Yeah. I, October is one of my favorite months. Um, and not really, really honestly, not because of Halloween, but just because of the way it feels outside. It's wonderful. It's mm -hmm. pleasant. It's like the great, it's like the perfect equilibrium between cool and warm uh the fall the colors are starting to change uh april on the obverse of that is actually also one of my favorite months because it's beginning to warm up and it's again that perfect kind of equilibrium and that's kind of the opposite holiday to Samhain. yeah 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 and so what you're what you like is that transition you like watching the transition of things so the the passage of of time reflected in nature and and yeah um at it on may 1st beltane is uh the celebration of um it's a very big fertile holiday and it's kind of interesting too because i think that there are some correlations between the two um you know there's walspurgisnacht which is sort of like the witch's night, which was um, April 30th. Um, and uh, there's a belief that at Beltane in May that, that, that we can connect with the Fae as well. And I have read that, that there are beliefs that, um, that the, the fairy would kind of like move. They would like on May 1st, so at Beltane, they would go to their summer homes. And then on Samhain, which is October 31st or November 31st, depending on who you talk to, um, they they go to their winter homes. So <laughs> I kind of like that, that they're, you know, they've got a summer home and a winter home. It's cute. It's so, interesting you mention all that because I never really thought about there being an association to the Fae, but I suppose that that's, I suppose that that makes total sense. I mean, the Celts were the originators of all that well and you know i think that in 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 the the most general sense the fae can represent spirits of nature um and spirits of place mm -hmm. and in that sense cultures all over the world believe in spirits of nature and spirits of place but i really right. think that, that the, the celtic people just had this incredible incredible rich tradition about you know the the, the other world um and 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 
this valuable connection to them. And, and it was a place of lessons and a place of growth and a place of magic and a place of change. Um, so yeah, so so Beltane, so you like Beltane and Samhain. And, and, and the interesting thing too is, is that the, the fairies are said to be attracted to in-between times and in-between places. Liberal so space. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so um, Samhain um, is meant to be the marking holiday in between the fall equinox and the winter solstice. So it's already an in-between time. Um, so could you imagine being out at a crossroad or like on the shores? Ooh, maybe I'll do this, like go out to the ocean um, being in sort of like a liminal space at like sunrise or sunset, you know, at Samhain. I think that could be really, really magical to see what kind of encounters or responses you have to the environment around you or, you know, what, what captivates your attention at that time might be really powerful. Cool. Um, are there, are there any, um, particular traditions that, people do now uh, in Halloween that have, um, I know a lot of them do have origin uh, in Samhain. Was there anything in particular that you really like and that you participate in? Oh gosh, there's so many. And, 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 you know, um, I'll say this too. So, so Samhain, uh, gosh, how do we, I don't even know where to start this. So I guess I'll start with saying this is that, that Samhain, I, I consider it a pagan holiday. And that means that that no matter what pagan tradition you belong to, this is something that, I, you know, Samhain is just a holiday for everybody. It is just, you know, all, the gates are open. Everybody come on in, you know, let's all celebrate. But, but, but I don't know, like sometimes people define Samhain as like a Wiccan practice and Wicca is just one aspect of, uh, it's one religion under the umbrella of paganism. Um, and so... Geesh, what do pagans do for Samhain? I mean, golly, I would say the first thing that comes to mind is divination because it's considered to be this sort of liminal time and this mystical time where we could connect with the other world. A lot of pagans are going to be practicing divination at this time. Um, tarot, oracle, whatever kits that you're using. The other huge significant thing um, and, I, and I'll say this sort of with like, like a, like a note, like for people that, that, that know, you know, have, have, you know, practiced and, and know what they're doing, but spirit communication is a big thing um, for people to do too. Uh, I'm not, you know, you could open up a can of worms when talking about spirit boards and seances, but it's certainly, a, you know, something that, that happens at this time of year is that you see people are really interested in communicating with spirits. Um, there is one really, really fun tradition that I think is really lovely for spirit communication called the dumb supper. <laughs> um, and this is a, it's an activity where basically you create a meal in celebration of somebody who's passed away. So let's just, for example, say that my grandfather passed away this year and he really didn't, this is just an example, but he's, he, he's wonderful. Um, and, and his favorite meal was lasagna. And so for this dumb supper, what I'm going to do is create 
his favorite meal. And I'm going to set the table for all the guests. And I'm going to set an extra spot for my deceased grandfather so he could come and sit and enjoy his favorite meal with us. And depending on who you talk to, some people say that during the dumb supper, nobody talks. It's just dead silence. You just eat the meal in silence and you sit there and you think about the person who's passed that you're paying tribute to and you listen and observe to see if there are any signs of that person's presence during the meal. That's a great way of spirit communication. Um, there are other people that say during the dumb supper, people will talk and what they'll do is they'll, they'll exchange uh you know, stories about the person who passed away just to celebrate them and, and, and rem, you know, remember them fondly. Um, so those are a couple things that, that people do. I mean, there's also people who do ritual, you know, if there are people that, that meet with groups um, doing ritual to celebrate the transition of, of the seasons, this is considered to be a time um, where we go from the light half of the year to the dark half of the year. And that doesn't, that doesn't have any like sort of like implication that light is happy and dark is not. It's just a matter of fact. Um, the, the sun <laughs> is not in the sky as long. So the days are shorter and they're going to continue to grow shorter until the winter solstice. Um, it's colder. And then for us, we also have that stupid, what's that thing where you have to like put the clock back and forward daylight savings daylight savings time yeah. yeah which is which in recent years has been right after halloween now yeah yeah so so it is kind of interesting um some people will call Samhain the witch's new year um and i guess that's kind of interesting there is the the theory that that the celtic Samhain was seen almost like a new year's eve like you could almost compare it to New Year's Eve celebration. Um, so they'll call Samhain the Witch's New Year. Um, and so in that sense, a lot of people will do magic for transition, for protection, to help at the crossroads. Maybe if you have to make a choice between two things, it's a good opportunity to uh, weigh your pros and cons. Um, and then bonfires, because that is just something that goes way, way back to the beginning of, of these celebrations. And I believe, too, I don't know if they're doing it this year, but I know that in Scotland, and it might even be Edinburgh, but I think they do it in Ireland, too. There are different places where you can go and actually have, like, a Samhain festival. So, um I'd have to Google it. I wish I, I wish I did that beforehand and I could be like, yeah, you guys should go here for Samhain next year and do a podcast in Ireland. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah. we, should just, we should just have our own like big Samhain celebration next yeah. year. Oh big, my God. Big bonfire. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's such, it's such a wonderful thing to do. Like, and think about how good that feels too, to, to be outside in that cool, crisp air and, share ghost stories <laughs> by the bonfire on Halloween. Um, so I don't know, the, that's a lot of the stuff that I could think about too. And then I really think too, that witches also celebrate Samhain for all of October. So it was interesting in thinking about our topic, our, our talk tonight, um, I was thinking about when do witches celebrate Samhain? And if you like, just, you know, pull a book off the, the shelf, you're like, when, when is, when is Samhain celebrated? 
it, it nine times out of ten it will say October thirty first. It connects it to uh, Halloween, but then there are also people that say it's November first. Um, that connects with uh, the first of Luagnasad, and then there are some people that say November second. But it's interesting. I love reading a lot of blogs and and seeing how people celebrate it. A lot of people will say, "Well, I celebrate Halloween on the thirty first. I celebrate Samhain on the first. Um, but there are also people who just say Samhain is not a day. Samhain is not just like one day on the calendar a year. It's it's a season. It's it's a celebration. It it just starts at you know Adam for for when you love October when you finally get that feeling that you you are experiencing the October vibe. For some and, people, it starts in like September first. I know, I know, and you see people with like their hocus pocus countdown. Fall feels they call it fall feels. Yeah, yeah, like that first pumpkin spice latte that you get in you, and you're just like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's Salin, you know. Um, and then there are people who like actually look like astrologically when is the X the exact exact time in between uh the fall equinox and um the winter solstice so i don't know i just say celebrate it when it feels good maybe you celebrate by going on a ghost tour with some of your friends um or you go on a hike or you have that bonfire <laughs> but this year it's the full moon on the 31st so we just have to yeah really amp it up this year <laughs> yeah is there any special significance to having halloween like halloween having a full moon is there any kind of like special thing that is done well i would say this is that this is a blue moon i believe let me look this up quickly before i go on so blue moon halloween yep perfect okay so you could tell I follow the moons really closely. I do. I usually do. But this year I've just been like totally wiped. Um, so <sighs> there are some people that believe that like certain types of magic should be done at certain times of, of, of the lunar cycle. Um, and that the, the full moon is very, very powerful. And it's a time that... that that you can really get some real powerful magic done. And people will say that about the new moon and the full moon are both really, really wonderful times to do stuff. But in reality, um, the, you can associate different types of magic with different lunar cycles as well. And, and I wish I could just, I wish I had like telekinesis because my friend, Michael Herkes, he wrote a book on moon magic and like what type of magic to do at each lunar cycle. So I know that he would have like the perfect suggestions in terms of what to do for a blue moon on Halloween. But I could tell you that for me, blue moon is the second full moon in a month. Um, we had our first full moon, I think it was October 1st or whatever, October 4th, you know, it was really, really early on. Um, and so for this blue moon, let's see, what can I tell you would be good magic to do for a blue moon? Of, of course, 2020 would have two full moons in, in the month of October. Yeah. And, it you makes know, on perfect Halloween. Sense. Right. I know, I know, you know, honestly, you know, I, I, I really think that, that that witches tend to be, and I won't I won't get overly 
you know, political, but it is a very tense year for Americans. Obviously, we've got a lot going on. And what's interesting is, is we have Halloween, we have this blue moon on a Halloween, and then we have an election on the third. And so I think that you're going to find this year, my prediction um, is that you're going to see a lot of witches on social media talking about maybe some magic that they're going to associate it with, with, with um, politics and, and maybe the wellness of, of the nation in general. And I, I would urge people to, to work on, on, you know, bringing people back together and, 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 and finding common <laughs> loving ground. I don't know. I'm trying to find nice ways to, to talk about it without having like a conversation. Yeah. But that's kind of like my prediction for something that, that, that I think people could really, you know, dig into this blue moon. Um, and I think that's interesting too, blue moon. <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm very liberal. So like, I like the idea of the blue moon and a blue candle on Halloween. Okay, you guys, I have to go write a blog. So, <laughs> but um, you never know. Yeah, I know. Wow, gosh. Yeah, now now I feel inspired. Like I have to get up and do this. Um, blue moons, though, generally, there there tend to be very powerful times to just um, imbue magic into projects. Uh, energetically, I think they're really good for developing psychic abilities. And a lot of people say that at Samhain, we tend to feel very, very, and maybe it's because that veil is very thin between our world and the other world. It, it you know, there's this feeling that maybe our psychic abilities are enhanced at this time. I don't know. It's, it's kind of interesting. Every year you'll see people talk about like, well, I, you know, I'm seeing things and my dreams are getting more vivid. I know the veil is thin. So I don't, I don't know if you guys feel, feel that right now or not, or if other people that, that are that, listening would, but. <laughs> that, that song is like running through my head too. So um, there's, a, there's a song. Yeah. The blue moon, the old 50s song. Sing it, Adam. I'm not going to sing it. You know what? You don't. You don't want me. You don't want me to sing. Trust me. Um, well, I was okay. wondering too about like some of the uh, the things that we uh, the things that most people do, um, and the things like trick or treating, jack o' lanterns, um, some of the imagery. Whether uh, those have uh, some some ancient origins to them. For sure. Yeah. Um, gosh, where do we start? So trick-or-treating, the one thing I think about, so I recently listened to a podcast where they did tie trick-or-treating back to Celtic Samhain, but the way that I looked at trick-or-treating was that it was connected to the, the Christian tradition of All Souls Day, All Souls Day. So All Saints Day was moved to November 1st and All Souls Day was moved to November. And I, I'm, I, I didn't go to catechism, you could tell. <laughs> so yes, there it is. So All Souls Day is November 2nd. And All Souls Day was a day where people were to pray for the dearly departed who were stuck in purgatory. And you would pray for them to be able to send their souls up to heaven. And so I guess people were too busy to pray. And so kids would go around and they would ask people, you know, like if, if you give me a little bit of money or a cake, I will 
I will go and pray on your behalf for, for people in purgatory. And so soul's cake, you know, those like soul cakes that came from that tradition. And so I always connected trick-or-treating to that. I guess though, I, I guess that there are other people that will say that trick-or-treating is really, really a modern day invention and that it kind of came out of, you know, post-World War II and just, you know, finding stuff for kids to do. But I think that, you know, the, the tradition of exchanging food and goods has to certainly go back to Celtic times, especially if it's the end of the Celtic festival. And also too, with kids, you know, getting these treats for prayers. So um, jack-o'-lanterns are also very ancient too. Um, and that's where that creepy picture <laughs> that I sent you comes in. Um, the Irish would carve turnips. Oh, I love this. This is like the infinity <laughs> of all of us. <laughs> It's so gross. <laughs> so the Irish would carve turnips and turn them into lanterns. And carving turnips is the biggest pain in the ass on the planet. Like, it is so difficult. I, I, I don't know. Like, but obviously they do the trick. They are creepy as hell. But apparently these um, little turnips were carved. And, you know, um, they... Well, I could tell you the story. Do you want to hear the, the story yeah. that goes along with the turnip? Okay, so so apparently there was this guy, and he was a real a real piece of work. His name was Jack. And um, Jack was, was too bad for heaven and too bad for hell. He couldn't even keep in hell. He was so nasty. And he was apparently in hell and was playing a poker game or a card game with, with Satan himself, with the devil. And he tricked the devil and won the hand against the devil. And the devil was so angry at Jack, he threw Jack out of hell and sent him back to earth. And Jack came tumbling back onto earth, our plane of earth, and from hell and, and fell into a field of turnips. And a coal from hell came with him into this, into this field. And Jack got up and cleaned himself off and started walking along through this field and pulled a turnip up for a snack. And he hollowed out the turnip and stuck the coal, the ember from hell into the turnip and used it to light his walk. So that's where jack-o'-lantern came from. Um, and that's, there you go, that's, that's a jack-o'-lantern. Um, and so they were lit and they were said to, you know, be protective, protect the home against spirits. Um, Candles were said to be lit to kind of help spirits find their way. So obviously if the veil is thin, if there are spirits that are lost, these lights and these candles and these lanterns could kind of help guide them to where they need to go. Um, when the Irish came to America, I'm sure that they were very happy to discover pumpkins um, because pumpkins are much, much, much easier to carve than turnips. Um, <laughs> and they're a lot of fun to carve too. I think they're so much fun to carve. Um, and so, and so instead of carving turnips, they started carving pumpkins. And so, and so jack-o'-lanterns took on this tradition in being a pumpkin. But they and, end up looking less hideous. That's for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. I guess it depends too how long you leave them out. If you leave them out till December, they could look pretty creepy. <laughs> um, 
So, and I think too that, that modern day witches can can definitely utilize pumpkins in their magic as Samhain as well. Like absolutely, like pumpkins are this wonderful symbol of fertility and abundance um, and wish making. Um, and so, you know, I've heard of, of witches, you know, drawing sigils and, and magical symbols or carving talismans into their pumpkins to help invite specific energy into their space, which I just think is absolutely fabulous. So cool. What about, uh, what about dressing up? Do you, does that have any kind of pagan origins? Well, I would say the, the dressing up has pagan origins, the full stop, you know, it, it's just, I, I always think of, of, of the shaman or the priest or the priestess who puts on a mask and all of a sudden they shape shift Oh no, Adam's gone. <laughs> <laughs> he dematerialized. Michael got him. <laughs> Is it Michael or Freddie? Cr I don't know. Okay. Michael or yeah. Anyways. Um, so, so I always think about the, the shaman, the priestess, the priest who puts on a mask and, and, and they transform into this representation of divinity. It's this opportunity for them to shape shift. Um, so I don't think that there's any scholarly book out there where you look at it and, and you know, there's some academic that says the ancient Celtic tribes dressed up on Hall on Samhain. Um, yeah. But really, naturally it, it feels very pagan. Doesn't I mean. it? Yeah. And I think, I think, I think that clothing and costume can be a really, really powerful form of magic. Like I absolutely think that you could really utilize the way you dress the jewelry. What do I have on today? Yes. I have on some carnelian crystal, you know, like, like, like the, the stuff you wear can, it can mm -hmm. shape you. Um, the same with makeup too, you know? And, and so I always say too, that, that, that it's Samhain or Halloween, however you want to, whatever you want to call what you're celebrating. If you do dress up, think about what you want, what you're dressing up as, because you're really shape shifting into this. This can be a magical transformation for the night. You could be whatever you want. Um, and maybe that's a magical spell that somebody cast too, where they say, you know, I'm going to dress as this, because this is what I want to be doing a year from now. Or, um, you know, maybe having a meditation or the costume they put on is them, but healthier, richer. I don't know. There's all sorts of things that you could do. So there's opportunity to use it as ritual because it's a society at large is uh, okay with everyone dressing up for that day. Whew, yeah, I know. I guess so. There's still those people that hand out those pamphlets that tell you you're going to go straight to hell when you do it. But <laughs> I think for the most part, it's just so much fun. And, and, and we need to have that. We need to. And, and I think that, that even, it, you know, if we go back and we're just like around a stone circle with a bonfire burning in the background in ancient, ancient times without electricity, without devices, you know, we've got to have fun. We've got to celebrate. And, and if dressing up is your way of celebrating, then so mode it be. Yeah. Have fun with it. Do, do you feel like there is kind of a, because I, I'm old enough to remember when like, you know, all the kids went out and trick or treated when it was really strong. Um, do you, do you feel like there's been a kind of a war against Halloween? Like it, it feels like there is. I think, I think that there's just a war against fun sometimes. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> like I just feel like I, I just feel like that 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 you know, we live in a time of of cancel culture and party poopers and gatekeeping and judgment and you know totally conflicting points of view and tension. You know, so so there's a war on anything. You could just list anything. There's a war on refrigerators. I'm sure there's a war. On a computer, there's a war on, you know, whatever, like list anything you could think of. And, but, you know, yeah, but I just feel sorry for, you know, a lot of the kids because I feel like they're not getting to experience uh, this, this great holiday. I know. And I think about how sad that is, too, because, like, I even think of, you know, I love the movie Hocus Pocus. Um, one of the few movies that, like, I obsessively, like, I've seen it, like, 20 times. And I love Salem so much. Um, even though it wasn't filmed in Salem, FYI. But um, I think about the scenes where they're all trick-or-treating. And yeah, we just, it doesn't everybody just trunk or treat now? They, they go from... I've seen that. I don't know exactly what that even means. It's like a... Yeah, I don't have kids, but I, I assumed what I envisioned was just a bunch of people like, like with their car in a parking lot and they just give kids candy. I don't know. I don't know, but I do. I, I wonder if it will make a revival again. It's kind of interesting because you kind of see it started off as kind of an adult holiday, especially like we didn't even talk about the history in like the Victorian times and, you know, how it was this this delightful, decadent party celebration for the Victorians to enjoy. So it was an adult holiday and then it was a kid's holiday. And then... Um, I think it became an adult holiday again. Like um, if you ever, like like in New York City, they had this parade in the village where people would just like dress up and go, you know, go walk through New York City dressed up. It's really fun. Um, you know, so it kind of goes through these waves where it feels like a grown-up holiday and then a kid's holiday and a grown-up holiday. And maybe right now we're just in a space where, Halloween caters to adults. And, and maybe that's a result of capitalism because um, Halloween is the second highest growing um, holiday in America, right behind Christmas. Um, so, I mean, like people, the neighborhood we're moving to, like people drive from towns away to go trick-or-treating. So like next year we're already like, well, we need a budget for Halloween decorations because like kids will come from all over the place just to you know, get candy there. So, I mean, that's kind of hopeful. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But cool. it is kind of, it's kind of dying out. I, I see what you mean. And I hope that, that, you know, maybe at some point it will be, you know, kid friendly again. Um, or, or that there are neighborhoods out there that, you know, do still welcome kids in and they don't have to yeah. just go from car to car to get a Snickers bar. <laughs> I kind of do feel like it was a concerted effort from a lot of, more fundamentalist Christians though. Um, because I just remember it being so, so healthy in, in the eighties and nineties. And then I just don't know what happened. I mean, it seems like a, a lot of fear based mongering about razor blades and candy and drugs and stuff like that. And uh, I know, and, and they're going to be able to totally utilize COVID-19 this year. Well, I guess they can't because I feel like the same people who are very devout evangelical i would even say are also anti-maskers <laughs> so i mean maybe they don't have to worry about it but you're gonna have a mask on anyways because it's halloween anyways yeah. I, I i hear what you're saying and i do wonder if that is the case you know 
and and that's something you'll hear in a lot of interviews in October is like, what are real are, are real witches evil? You know, and there's this constant, maybe not as much as it used yeah. to. Definitely yeah, know it. An opportunity the for the, the the media too to to talk about things like witchcraft mm -hmm. and these other subjects. Like, yeah, you get full page. Uh, full page articles and, and little spots on news and they might want to interview someone like you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they want to know if we're devil worshiping and doing nasty things and, you know, are we the ones putting razor blades in kids candy? And the answer is no, we're not evil. No, we don't worship the devil. And, you know, and I, I feel like, like that conversation luckily it doesn't need to be repeated as much in 2020 as it may have when I started studying. Like when I started studying in the nineties, it was just totally different universe. But then, I mean, like shows like Buffy and Charmed came out and as much as, as, as you know, we don't want to always reference pop and, you know, pop media. I mean, it definitely made it more inviting. And now Instagram makes witchcraft super inviting. Like, I just don't know where people get the camera and the, the time to <laughs> make such fascinating magical pictures. Well, we'll have to live without Mike Myers behind me because uh, my, my webcam is a piece of crap and crapped out on me in the middle of this. So oh. that was the reason why I froze up and had to leave and was trying to take. Do we want to show any of these pictures and talk about what they are? Pop up whatever you feel like. Yeah, sure, sure. Absolutely. Um, We've so seen Mr. Turnip. Creepy turnip guy. That's just a tarot spread. Um, the reason that I just wanted to share that is because, uh, you know, I think the divination and spirit communication and, you know, kind of like working with your psychic self is very, very, very fun, valuable, powerful um, enchanting, um, and enlightening and just such a great practice at Samhain. So that's the only reason why I popped that up. Plus it has my email or my <laughs> website. <on> <laughs> so are you saying that like when you do tarot, is there, is it more, you're saying like, like it's more powerful at that time to do, yeah. to do because of the thinning of the veil, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting too. It's the most exhausting time. Anybody that that is a working witch, so somebody that that reads professionally or is a writer, having to do those interviews where they are like, "No, we're not Satan worshippers." Like it's a totally different thing, and you know, you're talking to the wrong people. <laughs> you know, so it's a very exhausting season. But um, I think that that. I think that you could do divination and you can do tarot whenever, but I think that Samhain and Beltane are really extremely powerful times. And I know for me personally, Halloween and October in general is so busy for tarot readings. Although this year I'm very quiet. So if anybody wants a reading, I have a huge calendar up. on. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point too, because like, I mean, Last year is when we did the first Strange Realities conference, and we just found that, like, the reason we, we rescheduled for September for this year is because we found that, like, October is an extremely busy time. 
It, yeah, especially for this type of stuff. Like everybody wants to be a witch. Everybody wants to get a tarot reading in October. It's just kind of like everybody wants to put a Christmas tree up in December. It's kind of just, it, it's just such a wonderful tradition. And why not? So maybe that does go back to, to that Celtic tradition as well. If it's truly the end of the, the, the year, the end of the harvest, and we're transitioning into a new time, don't you want to do some divination to see what your future holds in this new year that you're going into? Um, so I guess in particular, the reason why I shared this picture with you is because, um, you know, it also touches upon some of the, the magic that, that witches enjoy at Samhain. So banishment magic, banishing negativity, crossroads, again, that feeling of, you know, it's time to turn the page. A seance and communicating with um, ancestors, communicating with spirit, uh, ritual. People really love to do powerful rituals, love spells. This is such a huge time for, you know, that sort of courtship magic. If you see me doing this, my cat is crawling all over the place. You know, my cat comes into all my, like, she's always just like, <laughs> um, and then scrying is another form of, um, scrying is, is gazing into a reflective surface to see if you see anything in the reflection kind of like john d did with the crystal ball so yeah. there are so and so i think i just shared a couple but but this goes along with divination as well i love this there are so many incredible like vintage images of of like halloween celebrations and so like you could just do like a simple simple google search or even like go on to pinterest and just put in vintage halloween and you will get so many delightful images like this one and the reason i picked this one is because first of all i love black cats they're amazing and <laughs> i love what she's doing she's actually performing love divination right now so what this this hmm nice lady is doing is she's peeling the um the skin of an apple off and what you're said to do with this this long long thread of of apple peel is throw it over your shoulder and it will drop on the ground and form itself in the shape of a letter and that letter is the first letter of of your future lover so interesting yeah. And hopefully I feel bad for anybody with complex letters. For, for <laughs> Does that have any relationship to bobbing, to bobbing for apples? Well, yeah, you know, and bobbing for apples is, is a very, very old tradition. I mean, there, there, there's actually, I don't know when the book was dated, but there is a, an, a, an image of, of bobbing for apples in a medieval text. Um, but bobbing for apples was a Halloween game and it was like meant to be like sort of a love divination. So whoever would get the first apple would be the person that gets married the quickest in the new year. Um, ah. and I also think it's interesting too, you know, apples are obviously growing at this time of year. This is a time when you are harvesting apples. I feel like you really do. I don't know if they're, if they're really growing apple, this must be like the, the last of the apples. Um, I feel like apples are more of a fall thing, uh, you know, like fall equinox, but apples are, you know, very, they're associated with love and beauty and romance and sensuality. Um, they're also an otherworldly fruit as well. So even in Celtic tradition, 
there's this belief that the other world had, um, you know, was always sunny and, and the trees were always in bloom and they always had these like beautiful, delicious apples growing. So I think it's really interesting because you think about the, the actual physical motion of bobbing for apples and you're immersing yourself into water, which is representative of, of you know, like the other world itself. It's like this watery dream. Yeah, this dreamy etheric element, and you're moving, you're going in, and you're trying to reach for that 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 fey element of the apple, that magical eternal beauty by grabbing that apple. So I think that that's really a powerful magical symbol. That's that's giving me like a early childhood memory of bobbing for apples with some of my uh, really close friends I grew up with, and like I'm I'm just remembering this tub filled with ice also oh, yeah. it was like even more extreme and just trying to get it. That's, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, that's interesting. I can't, I can't imagine that, that, it, that bobbing for apples is common anymore. No, probably not at all. It's just another thing that kind of just disappears. You know, we're all very, very safe and, you know, very, very, yeah. Yeah, I feel like, why'd you let your kids bob for apples? That could be a little dangerous. <laughs> I don't know. So, so yeah, so the, so the picture that you're showing now is just, you know, some different examples. Apple divination is so, so popular at Halloween. This is something that, um, like I was showing with that last picture, and like we were talking about with... Um, with uh with the bobbing for apples and you know the the nice lady who who tried to see you know the the letter <laughs> in the apple peel there are other ways to use apples to divine as well um and one of my favorites is in this image um and i'm going to just read it over because there are kind of different variations on this but there are so many like little divination games at Halloween where people are told to look into the mirror and they will see the image of the person they're going to marry. So it's almost like, like people are playfully conjuring spirits and ghosts and, and images, which I think is interesting. So anyways, this apple divination, um, the belief is that you cut the apple into, uh, nine pieces at midnight on Halloween. So Halloween, right before midnight, get your get your apple going in nine pieces. And right before Halloween, right before the stroke of midnight, start eating all of the apple except for the ninth piece. And at the stroke of midnight, you stab the last slice of apple, that ninth piece, and you hold it over your shoulder while looking into a mirror. And that's when you will see the image or the apparition of the person you are meant to marry. Hmm. It's almost bloody Mary-ish in a way. <laughs> yeah. That's what, I, yeah, that's what I thought when I first, when I read this. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and, and, and you know, it, it's very interesting that the, the bloody Mary came up and I remember doing bloody Mary as a kid um, and light as a feather, stiff as a board. Um, course i was the one that always wanted to do those did bloody, did bloody mary show up no 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 and i've never tried this this apple one but i would love for somebody to to give it a go and see if they see anything although i i do i wonder if that's like you know is that a good idea 
you know, and, and that goes back into the idea of, you know, going back to where we started in this conversation when we were talking about the Fae or not always these sweet Tinkerbells, you know, maybe if you do see an image or you see a reflection, is that, is that, is that good? Is it, is it going to be good every time? Like, what are you, what, are you playing with fire by doing stuff like this? Or is it really just playful and fun? I don't know. Seems like there's a fertility aspect to the apple stuff. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's that, that sensual, loving, eternal beauty element. Absolutely. Yeah. And all the seeds, you know, and the same with the, with the pumpkin too. There is some, some fertility. I was listening to a podcast somewhere and they were talking about how Halloween was a time where people were, you know, really trying to, to, to um, make babies. So it makes sense that these fertile symbols are a part of the day as well. Just another fun example, um, you know, I, I, I think that if anybody is really, really interested in Halloween, just Google it. And this might be something too, like if people want to decorate for Halloween and they want something a little bit different than, you know, going down to like Party City and getting, you know, or Costco and, and getting, you know, goofy decorations what you may want to do is look and see if you could find some vintage imagery because they're very very interesting like i love this witch with the peacock feathers and you know again the black cats um and the bats i just love all the imagery um, but i, I think cool little cutouts from a uh, like um one of these little halloween temporary halloween specialty stores that are utilizing like kind of underused retail space but i got a pretty cool like uh under ten dollar pack of all these vintage looking cutouts so mm -hmm. i got them on my front door and everything so That's i think or i think they're responding to that too that uh people are looking for cooler looking stuff like this you know, and, and, and this is really the witch's market. You know, it really is. It's And that's an interesting thing to say. And you'll always, you'll start seeing, like, literally on November 1st, I will be up and I will be at Michael's, you know, because <laughs> all of the Halloween decorations are going to be 70% off. But even this year, like, I saw some of, like, the stuff that they put out and it was so, so updated it was definitely updated so yeah i think you're right maybe people are catching on now where you can have more than just you know like a zombie crawling out and you know like um i feel like things are getting a little bit more sophisticated um as we progress and and many and and, and witchcraft is a very very popular thing right now too so yeah so is that a little owl at the bottom too it looks like yeah, a little hoot owl. There he is. If you see two witches at midnight with a peacock feather, all of white, you may be assured there's a lover's spat. Spat. Uh, so steal the feather from off their hat, pick a four leaf clover, and your temper keep on Halloween, and there'll be no cause to weep. <laughs> <laughs> cute there's so many so many examples of this like so many like um rhymes and and greeting cards with, with sayings like that and and just like there's even I, i've been reading this this book that was published in like 1909 and it was like it's 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 a little outdated so you know it's called like the girl's 
guide to, to, to being fun. And there are all sorts of like divination and Halloween games in this book from like 1909 that, that sound a little like this and have like the apple, you know, bobbing for apples kind of ideas in it as well. That's pretty cool. <laughs> That's cool. That guy again. <laughs> Michael. That's awesome. Great little what? pictures. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was really cool, Kiki. Um, we Aww. really needed this to balance out um, the first part. I think it worked out really well. I think this will be a cool uh, cool little Halloween episode and uh, with uh, plenty of visual accompaniment, too, where people want to watch it on here. I, you know, this was so much fun to talk to you guys and, and, you know, the, the, the strange realities conference was so much fun and I'm so happy that we could check in with each other soon afterwards. And, um, you know, especially for Halloween, I mean, how awesome is that? So, Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I think we're going to wrap it up and at the, uh, I think we're going to have a little, wrap up me and Adam uh, to cover all the stuff we've gone over with the other segments and everything. And uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. And that was the Conspiranormal Halloween special. Glad that uh, everybody could join us for that. And I uh, want to thank David Metcalf and Dr. Future and Timothy Renner and Kiki Dombrowski, who you just saw or heard, for being a part of it. Any thoughts on the uh, on the Halloween special? Yeah, um, it was just cool to get the um, more of the pop culture stuff balanced out with the ancient pagan origins of Halloween and, and Timothy's uh, experience based art. And uh, it was just really, really cool. We got the full, full dimensions of it. Of our, oh, yeah, one, of our one of my favorite times of the year. Absolutely. Yes. Same here. Same here. So uh, we hope that everybody enjoyed this. And uh, everybody will have like a safe, great, and healthy Halloween. And uh, want to thank everybody for listening. In this liminal time, we'll see you on the other side of this. That's right. On the uh, thanks for being part of the uh, Halloween special on Conspiranormal. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.